get your family vehicles ready for summer driving with early Memorial Day deals at Dobbs. Click on GoToDobbs.com for money, saver retire, and service deals today. Dobbs. With 43 locations, real deals are always close by. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is the Character and Smallman podcast, powered by I Promise. Now here's Character and Smallman. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Carriker and Smallman on 101 ESPN. At 7 o'clock, your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler. Michelle Smallman is back from both Cleveland and Chicago out yesterday. Good to have you back. How are you doing? <laughs> thanks, Randy. It's good to be back. And thanks, as always, to Danny Mac for filling in for me yesterday. We had a lot of fun yesterday, and it'll be fun today at the bottom of this hour. We're going to talk to ESPN's Kirk Herbstreet. He has a new book coming out. It'll be good to hear from him. And Mike Claiborne is going to join us from Pittsburgh, where the Cardinals open a three-game series tonight. Jay Happ getting his second start for the Cardinals, and he'll be opposed by Stephen, Stephen Brault, who's O and O with a 2.25 earned run average. The Cardinals will get started at 6.05. And Michelle, this is just, this fits right in with the Cardinals season. Is a soft spot in the schedule where they'll be able to take advantage of some lesser teams coming up. So that means that they're not going to win? Is that what you're telling me? Yes, that's what I'm telling you. (laughs) I'm trying to deduce what you're throwing (laughs) down here. But we've said that several times this season, and it feels like we shouldn't even bring attention to it. You know how some people think if there's a no-hitter going, you don't talk about it Mm -hmm. because you don't want to potentially throw anything into the universe that could disrupt it? That's almost how I feel about the Cardinals and a soft portion of the schedule. Anytime we highlight it or talk about it, it seems like the opposite happens. So maybe let's not even acknowledge it. Well, and the problem is (laughs) when the Cardinals go into Pittsburgh and go into Kansas, the city as they will over their next half dozen games, those teams are saying, ooh, the Cardinals are coming in. We're a soft part of the, soft part of the schedule. Yeah, actually, that's kind of sad. You're right. They're probably looking at the Cardinals coming in, looking at the way they've been performing this season and thinking, this is a chance. We've got a chance here. Yeah. Thursday will be fun. And Dan, by the way, will not be here on Thursday. But Thursday is that 1135 first pitch in Pittsburgh, 1230 their time. Mm -hmm. But a morning game in St. Louis on Thursday. And that's the return of Jack Flaherty to the starting rotation. Well, two things there. First of all, the earlier the game is the better, as far as I'm mm-hmm. concerned, because we have to get up early. That's a selfish thing. Now, on the uh, the other portion of this, for everyone in Cardinal Nation, we've been circling that date for a long time, or whatever we thought the date would be for Jack Flaherty's return. And maybe, Randy, he lights a fire under this team, because if so many of the reasons that the Cardinals didn't perform well for this season is going to be pointing to Jack Flaherty's absence, maybe his return is what's going to turn everything around and provide some consistency. 
crazy. And evidently, he has been unbelievable in his bullpen, throwing 94, 95, and just looking like Jack Flaherty. So that'll be fun on Thursday. By the way, Wayno goes tomorrow. Yesterday, the Cardinals put KK with elbow inflammation on the 10-day IL. And you know my philosophy, Michelle, about mm-hmm. elbow inflammation, right? Just do the Tommy John tomorrow. <laughs> Don't you wish that's an option that you could have? Yeah, just get if it you, done. If you were a play- well, can't you? <clears throat> You have to wait, right, so it gets to a certain point to have it. But wouldn't that be great if, as a pitcher, you could look into a crystal ball and say, okay, if I have elbow inflammation, nine times out of ten, it's probably Mm -hmm. going to lead to this surgery. Can I just go ahead and get it over with, (laughs) rip the Band-Aid off? But let's hope that that's not the case with KK. Thank goodness, though. And I know people were down on the acquisitions of Hap and John Lester. Mm-hmm. But thank goodness that the Cardinals don't have to bring Oviedo back, that they don't have to bring Woodford back, that they have guys that are plugged into the rotation, and now you'll get Flaherty and Michaelis back. So the Cardinals are going to be able to protect those guys and not force Johan Oviedo to set any records. <laughs> yeah, pretty good foresight, though, by Mo in the front office because they yeah. wanted guys to provide innings and wanted to protect guys like Oviedo and Woodford, and here they are. They're that protective barrier because you don't want to have to bring those guys up again. You want to let them settle in down in the minors and, and get some confidence back, get some rhythm back, and hopefully they uh, are in a much better position next season. And text in 65780 if you're like me and had thought that you had seen the last of Daniel Ponce de Leon because he's back. He has replaced KK on the roster. I thought for sure that last time he got injured and sent out that he would uh, he would be no longer a Cardinal. But he's been activated off the 10-day DL after a lengthy stint with a second shoulder injury of the season. And good for him, man. He keeps pounding that rock, and he, he's back. I, I really didn't think that we would see Ponce de Leon again, but here he is. Sometimes, though, necessity calls. Hey, he's got to navigate that injury, you know? Yeah. And uh, once he's able to do that, and once he's able to explore what's ailing him, uh, Ponce de Leon is fine. Last night in the National League, the Indians, well, interleague play, the Reds lost to the Indians 9-3. to At the moment, the Padres have a three-and-a-half game lead over the Reds. Braves 7 back, Mets 7.5 back, Cardinals 8.5 back in the National League wildcard race. And you say, oh, Mets 8.5 back in the National League, National League wildcard race. That is correct, kids. If you haven't been paying attention, the Philadelphia Phillies have a two-game lead in the National League East right now. The the NL East has been such a bizarre (laughs) division this year. It's been crazy, and nobody has been as good as we thought they would. And the Mets were kind of doing it with smoke and mirrors, but then they lose Lindor, and they don't have Syndergaard, and they don't have DeGrom. And now they are 56-55, and just to give you a little bit of... uh, perspective here. The Cardinals are 55 and 56. They're only a game behind the Mets who are two and a half out in the National League East. But the Braves, after rebuilding their club at the trade deadline, Mm -hmm. they're ahead of the Mets in the National League East too. So after spending most of the season in first place, New York is probably unless they get DeGrom back and he's dominant and Lindor is is good. Unless that happens, the Mets are probably going to miss the playoffs. And lo and behold, you're going to have Bryce Harper winding up in the playoffs for Philadelphia. If you're the Mets and you have made such a financial investment in improving your club and you miss the playoffs, how do you think their owner, Steve Cohen, reacts to that? I hope that he understands that Injuries are a huge part of the game. The same thing that happened to the Cardinals when they lost Flaherty is happening to the Mets Mm -hmm. without DeGrom. You lose that number one starter, and everybody falls in line behind that number one and takes pressure off the rest of the guys, and you win 
every fifth day. That's a guaranteed win when they when he pitches every fifth day. So it, Cohen is a big fan. I think he gets it that when you lose that main guy, plus his biggest investment was Lindor. So mm-hmm. you lose those two guys, and you're going to have some problems, and that's what they run into. But this is New York, and <clears throat> excuse me, I don't I don't know if they are going to take that as an excuse. Oh, the, reality would yeah lead you to believe that they would. But when you are in a market like New York and your build as a team that's going to be good mm-hmm. and make some noise, even with injuries to critical parts of your team, I don't know if that's going to go over well if they don't make the playoffs. No, but not everybody is rational. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Right? That's It won't go over well. But the fact of the matter is, here, if we just go back to Sunday's lineup and you say, okay, well, yeah, the, the the Mets are really good. And by the way, Zach Wheeler was unbelievable, the former Met, against the Mets on Sunday. But their lineup had Brandon Nimmo leading off, Jeff McNeil, who's hitting 267 this year, hitting second, Alonzo, who's great, hitting third, but then Dominic Smith is their number four hitter, Baez at short, Conforto, who's hitting 201 this year, is hitting uh, sixth, Jonathan VR, who's just kind of a guy. Uh, McCann is in the lineup, and he's your regular uh, catcher. And then Walker, that's not your lineup. So, yes, the, the team, when healthy, is good, but that's that's not the group that they planned on having. So, yes, there are irrational. There are two or three irrational people, I understand, in New York. A few, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, they're going to be down, but, hey, they'll, they'll, they'll be back next year. They'll have Baez at second and Lindor at short, which might be the best middle infield in the history of the game. Yeah, it's pretty good. And the one thing they should have done, the big mistake they made, I don't know if it was a big mistake, but... George Springer wanted to play there. And George Springer is having an unbelievable year for Toronto, who, oh, by the way, they're going to make the playoffs too. Here come the Blue Jays. Yeah. So the the trade for Berrios was huge for them. And they're kind of a scary team when you get to the postseason with the addition of Berrios and the lineup that they have. Tampa Bay has a four-game lead over Boston in that division. Toronto has won eight of their last ten after the deals. And they're 30, or no, I'm sorry, 10 games over 500. They're 60 and 50, 31 and 24 at home. And they've been great playing in Toronto ever since they got back to Toronto from Buffalo. Every team has obstacles that they have to overcome, whether it's injuries or things that are out of their control. The fact that the Blue Jays are in this position, when you think about all the things that they had to deal with this season, Mm -hmm. they were basically nomads for a, a portion of the season. And for them to be able to weather that storm and now be in this position where they're at home in Toronto, they've got these acquisitions to fortify their team and they're in a good position it's a good story yeah it it is and i kind of hope they do make the playoffs me too and one basketball note for you luka Doncic has signed a five-year 207 million dollar supermax rookie extension with the dallas mavericks so Doncic is set up for the next five years and he can reach unrestricted free agency again at the age of 27 after making 207 million from the mavs but if you're if you're looking at Luca and you're the Mavs, don't you want to lock him up? Oh yeah, it's, this is exactly what you want. Mark Cuban doesn't care about the cash. No, they have the cap space to do it. It it makes sense for them. It was a really smart move for them. But now they're going to have to surround him with some talent because Porzingis wasn't what they thought he would be when they got him from the Knicks. Tim Hardaway Jr. is an okay player, but what they need is to have Luca 
draw some super some other superstars to Dallas. He needs to get his LeBron on. Yeah. Start the to, recruitment process yeah. now. Yeah. And by the way, LeBron has been reduced to recruiting Mark Carmelo Anthony, also from the 2007 draft. So, you know, and that's L.A. But that's his boy. It and is. he's thinking if we're going to go on this run and potentially win, I want to get you along so you can get that ring. Yeah, but I don't know. I, they'll be fun to watch. At the very least, they will be intriguing to watch. That's Michelle. I'm Randy. And this is Character and Smallman on 101 ESPN. Coming up, get your text into the Air Comfort Service text line 65780. We've got a game of What's Better for You on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. <laughs> What's better coming up in just a moment here on 101 ESPN. Get your text into the Air Comfort Service text line 65780. Michelle and Emily during the break talking about Emily completing watching The Sopranos. Yes. And Michelle, you mentioned why would anybody want to be the boss? You're right. It's not a safe environment, is it? No, there's all of these people in the show that are struggling to grab their piece of power. And if there's even a glimmer of an opportunity for them to seize the top spot as the boss of the family, they're going to do whatever it takes to get there. And I don't understand why you would want that job because there's a bunch of other people just like you yep. below you that are going to do whatever it takes to get you out of the way once you're at, at the top. On Saturday, as we were going from the hotel to the Isaac Bruce induction ceremony, Michelle and I got the last two seats on the bus and they were the very front seats. <laughs> and so I sit down and Dick Vermeil is a couple of rows behind us. And I turned around and I said, I feel like the head coach here. And coach says... I always found that to be a pretty uncomfortable seat. <laughs> yeah, that's right. A lot you don't of pressure be, there. Yeah, you don't want to be the boss. Get your text in, 65780, the Air Comfort Service text line. And Emily has your what's betters for us. Emily, take it away. From the 636, what's better, a triple play or an inside-the-park home run? Oh, I would probably say an inside-the-park home yeah. run, even though a triple play is exciting. Just... The uh, suspense of is he going to get around in time and beat the throw is is pretty good. I have seen a couple of triple plays, and what inevitably happens with me is, was that a triple play? (laughs) It happened so fast. Yeah, you're right. But you do, like you said, with an inside-the-park home run, inevitably the ball goes under somebody's glove or they miss it, and there's an anticipation, a buildup of excitement as somebody is rounding the bases. Can they get the ball in to the plate fast enough to throw this guy out? And then when he's safe, obviously, it's it's your home team. It's euphoric. It's pretty cool. So, yeah, I have to go. In every single circumstance with, yeah, every single circumstance with the inside the park home run. I was thinking about a weird triple play, like uh, a couple of guys uh, that are trying to score on a fly ball to left field or something. But no, I, I'm, I'm going with the inside the park home run every time. From the 314, what's better, the Cardinals powder blue or the Cardinals cream alternate? Oh, this is a good one. I... I, I think of all the Cardinal jerseys. Okay, so you've got the Saturday cream on, at home, powder blue on the road, gray regular road, uh, and home whites. I believe that of all of those, my favorite is the cream home, the, the Saturday cream home. I think the powder blues are so sharp. They're beautiful. I love the Cardinals powder blue uniform, so that's my pick. I'm going to pick that over any any 
alternate jersey. And by the way, I like the fact that they're special and they only wear those on Saturdays, mm-hmm. whether it's the cream or the blue. I wouldn't want those to be their regular jerseys. I'm fine with the gray on the road and the, the red, the the birds on the bat really pops on the road and on the home whites, but on the road grays. So I'm very cool with, I guess, uh, Sunday through Friday wearing what they wear and then Saturdays being a special day. Do we all agree that the grays are at the bottom of the list, though? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know know what? It's a gray uniform. But it's still pretty cool. I mean, of their four, it's at the bottom of the list, but it's really, really nice. Yeah, I'm not anti the grays, but I just think when you have the cream or the powder blue, the grays just feel... Or the bright white, yeah. Or the bright white, yeah. The grays just feel, mm, it's gray. Yeah. From the 314, what's better, meatloaf or pot roast? I don't really like either. So I guess I'm going to go pot roast. Okay, there are some times where I like meatloaf and sometimes where I don't. It depends. Like, people make meatloaf in different ways. Mm-hmm. I don't want like a sweet meatloaf. I don't want any brown sugar in it or anything like that. I want it more savory. And I prefer meatloaf on a sandwich. So in and of themselves, I am going to go with the pot roast. That being said, I think the last time I had pot roast, I was probably 12, 13 years old. <laughs> really? Yeah. So I'm like you. I'm not really a big proponent of either. But for me, give me good savory meatloaf on a sourdough with some Miracle Whip. From the 314, what's better, Isaac Bruce's or Peyton Manning's speech? So Peyton's was obviously great. Mm-hmm. It was funny. It was sincere. It felt like he was running for president. But I think that the fact that it was so curated and he delivered it to such perfection that I'm going with Isaac Bruce, who didn't have his iPad and didn't have a prompter and didn't have it memorized. And he just spoke so genuinely from the heart. And this is no disrespect to Peyton's speech because it was outstanding. But I think I'm more impressed that Isaac was able to go up there with a a clock counting in front of his face and all of these people staring at him and deliver what he did off the top of his head. Peyton's was clearly, as you said, very well said, a curated speech. Isaac's was a sermon. Yeah, it was. And it was great. I'm, I'm going with Isaac's as well. Both really good, though. Yeah. From the 636, what's better, a Dairy Queen Blizzard or Dairy Queen Banana Split? The Dairy Queen Blizzard chocolate ice cream with uh, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups is clearly better than the Banana Split. Clearly. Clearly. Yeah. Can't go wrong with a Blizzard. And Blizzard, that's such a broad question because there's only one kind of Banana Split. There's a hundred kinds of Blizzards. You can order your own and make it. Good call. Yeah. Yeah, you're not going to put Reese's Pieces on a banana split. No. But you're sure going to mix them in a blizzard. Yeah. From the 314, what's better? The USA basketball team dominating their opponents with minimal excitement or where they struggle a little, lose a game, and have each game truly count. Domination. Me too. Same. 
There will never be anything like 1992. The Dream Team? Yeah. Yeah. And there will never be anything like Charles Barkley elbowing a guy from Angola. It was just great. And winning games by 40 and 50 points is a lot of fun. It's fun when your team in any realm dominates, but especially when it's your country dominating other countries and the Olympics. And especially if it's basketball where that's been the way it goes for a long time. I would rather have them dominate every country from here on out anytime they play and interestingly the reason that the usa will never be able to dominate again is because of the dream team those players and specifically michael jordan turned this into a global sport where kids from france and kids from australia and kids from spain they all decided you know what uh, lithuania I want to play basketball, too. Mm -hmm. And so the best athletes from those other countries were watching Michael and and that team in the Olympics and said, boy, I want to play basketball. And then they all started playing like him. And so Luka Doncic is playing like Michael Jordan. And that's why we'll never be able to win by 40 on a regular basis in the Olympics again. Blame Michael Jordan. (laughs) (laughs) He he was a monster that created monsters. From the 618, what's better on Taco Tuesday, crispy or soft tacos? Crispy as in the hard shell? Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, I'm hard shell over soft shell all day. I like when you eat a taco and there's the crunch to it. It's very satisfying. Even though when you, even though a soft taco, it's easier to keep all the accoutrements of your taco in because it's more like a blanket. I think the satisfying crunch of a hard shell taco is better, and I think that the the corn shell of the hard shell taco tastes better as well. When I go through the drive through at Taco Bell and order tacos, used to be a number eight, I don't know what it is now, <laughs> but it was three tacos back in the day, and they said, crunchy or soft shell? I'm, I'm bewildered that they would even ask the question, because it's always crunchy. You always take the hard shell taco. A hundred percent of the time. I can't imagine. Text in 65780. You can do so anonymously. And tell us if you do order soft shell tacos in the Taco Bell drive-thru. I think a lot of people do. A lot of people probably, if they're getting it in the drive-thru, like I said, that soft shell tortilla is like a little blanket that keeps everything just really nicely wrapped in there, swaddled in. You get your meat and your cheese and your tomato, your sour cream, whatever you get on there, swaddled in. So if you're going through the drive-thru and you want to eat on the go, you want to make no. sure that your suit or whatever that you're wearing to work is protected. No, so Michelle. get that swaddle. So you are going from one event to another. You're going from work and you have to MC a dinner, but you're starving. It's worth it to have a little splotch of the sauce from the hard shell taco on your white shirt. It's worth it to have that little splotch. Maybe it's maybe even some mild sauce to have that on your white shirt at the dinner that you're going to. Mm-hmm. If you can have a crispy taco uh, rather than a hard shell rather than a soft shell. I don't worth know it. because if you, what if you're going to a big meeting? You don't want you know Taco Bell shrapnel all over your outfit. And that's what you're going to get when you the eat people, the crunchy taco. It shoots out. It's just the nature of the game. The people at the meeting will understand. This is an Ask Uncle Randy segment. People at the meeting will understand. They'll say, what, what, what went on? And he said, well, I wasn't going to have a soft taco. I was going with a hard shell taco from Taco Bell. They say, oh, I get it. Okay, let's move on. You know what the the real answer is here? Hmm. I need to make sure that Napkins? I'm getting the name. No, the real play is you get a cheesy gordita crunch, so you get both. Yeah. You get both in there. It's a good play. Yeah. Yeah. From the 618, what's better, a rainy, warm summer day or a sunny, cold winter day? 
Okay, I'll take the rain and the heat. Uh, yeah, the warm is always, always, always better. The winter's stupid. Winter is so stupid. Maybe that should be uh, one of our fourth, our, our fourth uh, pillar. <laughs> pillars. Here. That winter is always stupid. Yeah. So we've got all roads lead to hardware, deflect blame at all costs, blame at all costs, keep the panic bus keys, and maybe winter stupid should be the fourth pillar. Yeah, I like it. Okay, good. Thanks, Emily. Thank you. Coming up next year on 101 ESPN, Kirk Herbstreit of ESPN has a book coming out. We're going to talk to him about that and about what's coming up in college football next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. <laughs> One of the great things about August is that we're just a couple of weeks away from the start of college football and college game day on ESPN. Michelle Smallman, Randy Carricker with you on 101 ESPN. And we head to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line. Kirk Herbstreit of ESPN has a new book out called Out of the Pocket, Football, Fatherhood, and College Game Day Saturdays. The book can be pre-ordered at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and most other online retailers. Comes out next week. Kirk, thanks so much for joining us here in St. Louis this morning. How are you doing? I'm great. Good morning. Great to have you with us, and uh, we want to touch on the book, first of all. Uh, are, I, I would imagine you're pretty excited about it coming out next week. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a culmination. Um, I, I really didn't think I'd ever write a book. This is not something that, uh, you know, as, as I was in my career, I thought, boy, one day I'm going to write a book. I, I've had a number of people approach me about the potential of writing a book, and I didn't even know what the subject matter would be. Um, I guess there's a variety of different directions to go. And I, I just decided to just kind of talk about my journey, uh, not just as an athlete or a broadcaster, but really my journey growing up and some of the, some of the trials and tribulations that, that, uh, that I went through we kind of all go through different uh, challenges in life. So I just, I felt like sharing uh, some of mine and, and maybe giving people a, a point of view or perspective that might be a little bit different from the person um, that you watch on TV on College Game Day. And we'll we'll touch on some more details about that in a moment. But it's been such a busy offseason in college football. And here in St. Louis, we obviously are interested in our former Big 12 rivals, Texas and Oklahoma, making their way to the SEC. Kirk, how do you think that'll affect the rest of college football and conferences and uh, just the setup of college football in general? Yeah, I think, I think it's a couple huge dominoes, obviously, with those two brands. Um, I, I have such mixed emotions uh, on this whole thing. I, I'm a bit of a traditionalist just growing up in the era that I grew up in. It, to me, it's not all about national championships. It's not all about the money. It's not, I mean, it just seems like that's where we are right now with, uh, with every aspect of this game. And I, I you know, I, I like thinking about when I was a kid watching Oklahoma and Nebraska and Texas and Oklahoma and just you know, the list goes on and on the games that you could you could watch on a, on a given Saturday and, and you weren't sitting there watching those games thinking, okay, how does this impact the playoff race? So you just watched it because it was competitive and it was mm-hmm. fun. And uh, we're, we're potentially losing some of that. So I think what you'll see is eventually the big 10 makes some, some alterations and probably realign a bit. I think the PAC 12 will, the big question of course, in your region is what will be left of the big 12? You know, are they going to, are they going to still be recognized as, as a power conference? Are they going to be able to pick up some new teams? So um, you take OU and Texas out of the Big 12, and, and 
you know, there's, there's a lot of obvious concern about the future of the conference. So that that's the sec will become a, the power conference if it wasn't already. But to me, there's a, a lot more to the sport than just making sure that the sec is the power conference. Kirk, do you think these moves are a couple of bricks on the path to four eventual super conferences? It's, it really appears that way. Um, I, you know, if you go back years ago when realignment first started and we saw teams like Nebraska leaving that region and going into the Big Ten and Colorado leaving and going out to the Pac-12, and I mean, it happened even West Virginia. They're all the way down in the Big 12. Uh, when that started to happen, I think all of us kind of speculated, this, isn't, this doesn't feel done. And we always assumed that there would eventually be a power four conference and, and a conference is, and, it, and it, it appears after this latest move, unless the big 12 can somehow salvage themselves and, and still be recognized, you know, the, the American is out there, you know, they, they've kind of been knocking on the door to try to be respected and, and be looked at as a conference that deserves more recognition in football anyway. And um, so I don't, I don't know where, I don't know where we're going to go. It feels like it's going to eventually be four big conferences but again, I, I would just kind of continue to say for a guy who played this game, who has covered this game, I've been around the game in the front row for the last, I don't know, 35 years. I, I just think that we, we've got to be very careful with, with what we're doing to the sport and um, you know, not forget about what this game is really about. It's not just about crowning a national champion and making everybody else feel irrelevant. And I really feel the playoff has created that with four teams. It's like if you're in the, the race for the four teams, you matter. We're going to talk about you. It's great. If you're not and you're still having a good year, nobody cares on a national level. That, that's just not healthy um, for the sport. And I, I hope the, the, uh, the power brokers and decision makers uh, keep in mind tradition and education and, and what this, this game is really uh, intended to be about. Kirk, I want to swing back to the Big Ten because you know college football inside and out, but you know the Big Ten super intimately. And I went to Illinois. A lot of our listeners are from the Illinois side of the river. And it's such a mystery to me why Illinois, with the resources that they have and the talent that they have at their disposal in-state, cannot be consistently great. So when I when I look at Illinois, you know, the Ron Zook era had a bit of a surge where at least they were in the Rose Bowl. But what does Brett Bielma need to do now as he takes the reins at Illinois to make them a consistently successful successful program in the Big Ten? Well, let me let me go back and say growing up in the era that I, I grew up in and also what I played uh, in the Big Ten, L- Illinois was legit. You know, they, they were they they were a team that recruited very well uh, in Chicago, East St. Louis, uh, had tremendous athletic ability, had a big home field advantage when you went to Champaign. Uh, Mike White throughout the 80s, the way he recruited, um, you know, he got some junior college players in and they, they were just dynamic. They always had a great quarterback. They always had great defense. So it, it's 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 there. I mean, it's it's proven that they can do it. But boy, it's been a long time uh, since they've had their last winning season. I, I want to say it was 2011. Um, and, and the Big Ten needs the Illinois brand back and not just kind of a foregone conclusion when you play them. Uh, there's too much pride in that program to go 10 years without. Not, I'm not saying like a Rose Bowl. I'm saying a winning season. So what do you have to do? First of all, you got to bring in a coach. And I think they've done that with Brett Bielma, who knows how to recruit. Um, he, he knows the waters of the Big Ten. He's incredibly competitive. 
and, and not just recruiting, but in, in hiring great coaches, coordinators to, to make this team uh, competitive. So I loved Lovey Smith. I think he's a great coach. Uh, but I think you, you, there needed to be a change to bring in some some new energy. And I think, I don't know if you can feel that, just watching how Brett does interviews and the way he's handling things, but I sure can just w- watching from afar. So I think you got to go out and recruit. you got to take over. Uh, you got to get into states like Ohio. You know, I mean, you got to get into uh, hotbeds and, and find players that maybe you don't get the top guy, but you get that next guy down, and then you start to kind of build a little bit of momentum and belief. Um, they've got like 18 starters back this year. So he's inheriting a team that's played some football and we'll see if he can do anything with it. They, they start off, as you guys know, Thursday on the 28th against, uh, or on Saturday on, against, uh, they call it week zero <laughs> against Nebraska at home. So we'll see how they do, but man, I'm pulling for him. I, I love Brett and, uh, and hope that he can get that brand back to being competitive. Kirk Herbstreet's new book, Out of the Pocket, Football, Fatherhood, and College Game Day Saturdays, available next week. You can pre-order now. And, Kirk, you mentioned growing up and watching TV. And as it turns out, you and I share a birthday. You're exactly seven years younger than I am. And uh, happy birthday to you next week, by the way. (laughs) Same to you. Um, (laughs) Same to you. (laughs) But I I think it's really hard for a, a school like Mizzou or like Illinois to wedge their way in. If you if you look at what last year was, top six teams, Bama, Clemson, Ohio State, Notre Dame, A&M, Oklahoma, all of those schools were in the top 20 when we were kids, and they were always there. You throw USC and Georgia in there. It seems like it's really difficult if you're a non-blue blood to fit into that national championship conversation. Totally, and, and not even a non-blue blood. I mean, it, it, it's, it's the bluest of blue bloods. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, right now... It's, I mean, I could tell you right now, I mean, and their upsets happen, but we haven't seen a lot of them, that Alabama, Clemson, and Ohio State are going to be in the playoff this year. I mean, it's, and you know who's going to be in the playoff next year? Ohio State, Clemson, and Alabama. Yep. And, and it didn't used to be like that in this sport. I mean, there was always surprises. That's what makes this sport so great. I just think that um, right now, and, and I work at a network, and we, we've talked about this in closed-door meetings leading into this season, we carry, we have the playoff, you know, we, it's on our air and we do playoff shows and, and we are guilty as much as anybody of driving that narrative that, Oh, this team matters. Oh, this team at ninth, by the way, ninth in the country, ah, they're out of it. They, they're not in the playoff. And it's almost like we just throw them to the side. Meanwhile, they're ninth in the nation, not ninth in their conference. And we make these conference championships that don't maybe impact the playoff feel insignificant. So I, I hope, and starting with us who, who cover it daily, I hope we can make the teams that are outside of the Blue Bloods feel relevant and feel like what they're doing matters because we owe it to them to do that. We owe it to the sport to do that. But, yeah, it's a, it's a, I think it's a, a big concern when Alabama, Clemson, and Ohio State, those are the three, they're in. So we're talking about one team. Who's that one other team going to be? <clears throat> is it going to be Oklahoma? Is it going to be Georgia as a second team? You know, it's, it's just the same teams every year. And that's why there's talk about expansion and trying to get uh, maybe up to 12 different teams uh, into the playoff. You know, will, will it make a difference? I don't know at the end of the day, 
but at least it can create some potential more excitement to make teams feel that they have a legitimate shot at getting there. Hey, Kirk, schools have started in St. Louis, so you're talking to a lot of young people on their way to school today. And I, I think your book can be educational because there's a lot of painfully shy kids out there that's, that wonder why and wonder what the future holds. And part of your book, one of the things that you tell us is that you were very shy as a youngster, too. Yeah, they're, they're, you know, my parents divorced when I was eight. Um, I, 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 you know, if you, if you think about growing up, for me in the 70s in the Midwest, I mean, I was the kid in the backyard. We were playing freeze tag or playing backyard football or wiffle ball or, you know, on the swing set or whatever. We were in a creek. We were just outside, you know, and that, that was all we knew. Um, you had three TV channels, and I had the perfect group of about 20 friends in, in the yard, and I was the youngest. And I, I, that, to me, was heaven. And then one day my, my parents said that, you know, they were getting a divorce and I was moving and, and that world ended. And I was a shy, really, really shy kid. And I ended up, I didn't realize it at the time, but I would end up moving uh, quite a bit because of my mom and dad marrying and remarrying and divorcing. And it just kind of continued to go on. And so I bounced around almost every year uh, in different schools. And I, I talk about that. I talk about the pain of divorce and how to this day I, I still deal with that. My whole family deals with that. And um, it, it can be challenging. And, I, and I've just found that whether it's faith or, or your support staff of family and friends to help you get through tough times, I think that's the most important thing. And so I, I, I kind of decided to be vulnerable and open up and talk about things that I really haven't thought about in 40 years and to be candid, when I did this with Gene Wojciechowski, who wrote the uh, was the ghostwriter of the book, he he asked me some things that I've kind of compartmentalized and not really thought about in a long, maybe forty years, and it was emotional and tough. And and um, but I felt I felt that um, for a reader that, that maybe it'll resonate. Maybe my story can resonate a little bit with with different people. Um, like I said, the perception of me, I'm sitting there in a suit. You know, and like like I live in a, a perfect world and, and it's furthest from the truth when you when you see how um, hopefully I'm relatable in a, in a way that I'm just a, a, a guy that uh, happens to have found my path and very fortunate to do something that I love to do. Um, it wasn't for me about money. When I talk about that, I, I just kind of got into local radio and making twelve thousand dollars a year. I had no idea what it was going to lead to, but but I loved it. And, and, and I think that's the message. Another message in in the book is finding a passion and not worrying about money and, and chasing that passion and, and not knowing what the next door might be that you walk into. Because when you do something you love, um, you, to me, it's a, it's a blessing to be able to do that and not go to bed dreading the next day, but actually look forward to going to work the next day. So I try to encourage kids and in, in college to, to not get caught up in, oh, I can make this much money if I take this job. It's, it's more about trying to find something you, you, you enjoy. And um, and I've, I've been able to experience that myself. Kirk, final thing. I'm not a Mizzou alum. I'm, I'm a fan. And I went to your college game day in Columbia in 2010, and it was raucous and it was fun. And you get to experience that every week. Uh, how much did you miss that last year during COVID? And how excited are you to be able to, to get back to some semblance of normalcy? Let me just tell you that, that I, I never had been to Missouri. Um, I I, I didn't know really what to expect. You know, when you go to these, it's been one of the cool things about doing college game day as a big 10 guy, you, you go to all these different campuses he'd never have been to. And when we went to Missouri is the Chase Daniel era. And they were really, really talented um, back in that time with Gary Pinkle. And I didn't know what to expect. And Holy cow. I mean, I don't, if you were there, 
I don't know if there's 15, 20,000 people around there. There was a buzz when we showed up on Friday to tape our sports center sets or our uh, segments. And um, it was, it was tremendous. Uh, you know, I close my eyes and I think about that. It was one of the greatest upsets of my college game to experience from what I expected and what the reality of what that show was. I cannot wait till we get, we get back there. Um, but yeah, last year was brutal and for everybody, mainly the players and coaches to go through what they went through um, to, to be a broadcaster the way I got through it. I don't know how you guys felt about your jobs. I kind of felt like every time I would go out there with no, no fans, it's, it's like a, you know, a, a musician singing <clears throat> usually in front of a sold out arena and there's no one in the, st- no one in the stands. And we just did it because it gave people hopefully at home um, when there was still a lot of unknowns about quarantines and, you know, is a vaccination coming up or where are we in the world? It gave people sense of normalcy to be able to turn into ESPN and see college game day and hear us breaking games down talking about the sport. So that's what got me through it, but to, to perform it and, and do the show was, was uh, obviously pretty challenging without having our fans, which are to me, the best college football fans are the best fans of any fans in, in the United States and to not have them behind this was uh, one of the more bizarre experiences uh, that I've ever had doing the show. Looking forward to college football with Kirk Herbstreet on ESPN right around the corner. The name of the book out of the pocket by Kirk Herbstreet available next week, wherever books are sold. Kirk, so great to have you with us on one one ESPN in St. Louis. Have a great season. And hopefully as uh, Eli Drinkwitz and Mizzou get going, we can do this dur- during the season too. Thank you. That'd be awesome. Thanks very much. You guys have a great day. You too. Take care. That is Kirk Herbstreet, ESPN. Man, is he good. And whether it's college game day or taking the flight to wherever the game is that night, he's as good as it gets. I think Fowler and Herbstreet are such a fun listen for college football. Absolutely. And think about that schedule that you fly in on a Thursday or a Friday morning. You're there taping segments. You're getting ready for the show. You're up super early. The intensity of a a show that's several hours long on set college game day. Then you're on a plane to a different game that you're calling that night. It is so impressive what he's able to do. And you lived that on the radio college, uh, college game day on the radio. And the, the campuses are just raucous. It's really, really fun when a campus is excited about a football team. It's the most fun thing I've ever had the privilege to do in my career is when we went on the fall football tour and we went to all the different big I think we did three a season plus the national championship game, the biggest and best college football environments in the country. And like Herbie said, there is nothing like a big college game day experience. Like if you're going to go to Baton Rouge for LSU Alabama on a Saturday night, the intensity and the energy there is unlike anything else in sports. That's Michelle. I'm Randy. Coming up, get your text into the Air Comfort Service. Text line 65780. We've got Take It or Leave It coming your way on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. It is Character and Smallman on 101 ESPN. Michelle, Randy, Emily with you, and we want your text 65780, the Air Comfort Service text line for Take It or Leave It. Uh, Michelle, did you see the video of the Dodgers ball girl, Marissa Rohan, just completely taking out somebody who had run on the field? I did. It was fantastic. It was great to see her make quite a form tackle. Uh, Take it or leave it. She might wind up getting a call from the Rams this year. (laughs) 
<laughs> they should at least bring her in for a tryout. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. So we're excited about the possibility of the Rams this year. There's a lot of great possibilities for the uh, the Los Angeles Rams in 2021, aren't there? Well, Matthew Stafford's their quarterback now. Mm-hmm. What could go wrong? What could go wrong? Nothing. So she that was impressive. Good for Marissa. That that was. So earlier in the show, Randy, we talked about Peyton Manning's Hall of Fame speech and just how great it was. It felt like he was running for office, the way mm-hmm. he delivered it and the the words that he used. It felt political in a way, not necessarily about actual politics, but the politics of football. Just the way he carries himself, it feels like someone who should be in charge of something, right? Mm-hmm. So take it or leave it. Peyton Manning should be the next commissioner of the NFL. Yeah, I'll take that. Because he seems to have a grasp of right and wrong. And he does seem political. He, I can't imagine somebody not getting along with Peyton Manning or having a cross word with Peyton Manning. He always seems like he's genuinely a, a good guy. So he would fit. The only reason that he wouldn't is because he is a good guy and he would have to deal with those NFL owners. Right. But I also think he is such a force in the game and is already such a celebrity that even though these owners have a lot of money and power, he's not afraid of them. No. And even though the commissioner is supposed to defer to the NFL owners, I could see someone like Peyton Manning, who isn't afraid, pushing back and wanting to do what's best for the game. When we were at the ceremony and Paul Tagliabue was speaking and he kept talking about the greater good of the game and how as the commissioner you had to take a step back and look at things from a big picture perspective. Is the move that we're going to make now going to benefit the game in the long run? It feels like that's not really happening now. That it's what's going to benefit us from a monetary standpoint the best in the immediacy of this decision. And I think Peyton Manning has the depth and the scope to Take a bigger look at things and push back. Good call. By the way, take it or leave it, you could speak for 15 minutes without taking a breath like he did. Um, If I had it written down, I'll take that. Because I imagine he not only had it written out, but he had practiced it so many times that if if you're in the rhythm and you have the adrenaline going for that moment, that I think you could probably do it. That was remarkable. But he did a great job. Your texts, Emily, what do we have? From the 636, take it or leave it, analytics is the reason for the Cardinals' inconsistency this year. Yeah, I'll take that. And injuries. Yeah, they've helped. But like Mark McGuire talked to us about, the fact that with analytics, players have to think so much at the plate. He said, last thing you want to do at the plate is think. And I do believe that that can, for some players, become overwhelming and cause inconsistency. I don't think there's any doubt. Well, if Mark McGuire said it about hitting, I'm going to believe it. Yeah, that's right. I don't don't think there's any doubt about it. Yeah, if Mark McGuire is going to tell us something about hitting, I'm going to defer to his knowledge all the time. (laughs) From the 314, take it or leave it, the Cardinals will score four or more runs tonight. I'll take that. Because they had a day off? Well, that and they're in Pittsburgh. Traditionally, the Cardinals have hit pretty well in Pittsburgh. And uh, let's see, they've got uh, Stephen Brault going. So they, they've hit him before. So, yeah, I'm going to say four or more. I'll take it, too, because let's be positive about it. Yeah. From the 314, take it or leave it. Paul DeYoung gets traded in the offseason, and they sign a top free agent shortstop. I'm going to leave that on both counts. I'm going to leave that, too. It seems like they're going to ride with Paulie D. I just, 
I always try to look at this not from what we want them to do, but what we think they're going to do. And when you have the Paul Goldschmidt contract, you have the Nolan Arenado contract, they're likely bringing back Wayno and Yachty. I'm sure they have one eye towards Jack Flaherty. I just, from a a strictly financial standpoint, don't see it happening. Paul DeYoung Even with the money coming off the books, by the way. Paul DeYoung is hitting 198 with a 665 OPS. Several years ago, John Mozeliak said, we don't evaluate players on batting average. So guys hitting 198, they really don't care. Now, I don't know how they properly evaluate a player, but it's not batting average. So whatever it is, and it's not great, right? It doesn't seem to be 665 OPS. Isn't that great either? But I think they have the investment in DeYoung, and for some reason they're going to believe in him, despite the fact this is essentially his third bad year in a row. From the 314 ticket or leave it, we see a transcendent athlete like Tiger Woods or Wayne Gretzky in the next 30 years. I'll take that. I wonder what sport it will be. Soccer. We'll, we'll oh, see a, a, a soccer one. athlete in America that becomes dominant. Becomes the guy, yep. the American soccer player as soccer continues to grow in this yeah. country. Transcendent. I actually think that's a really good call because I don't know if it's going to happen in golf like Tiger because of the just amount of talent that you have right Mm -hmm. now in golf. I don't know if you're going to see one guy be as dominant as Tiger was. There's a lot of parody in the other national sports. I mean, we're seeing something we've never seen with Shohei Otani. Right. So there is always room for someone to come in and do something that we've never seen before. But to be a, a Tiger Woods type person means you need to be dominant and do it for a long time. And I think soccer is a really good call. Thank you. From the 314, take it or leave it, there will be an MLB team with 95 or more wins this season. That's a really good question. And I, I think we will. Let's see, because you can only have 62 losses. I would say that my my team that's going to do that, I'm, I'm going to go with Tampa. Tampa is 68 and 44 right now. 78, 88, so they would need to go 27 and 18. I think they can do that. I'm looking at the standings right now. Tampa's a good call. I, I think the Giants will... I was just going to say, what about yeah. the Giants? But in that division, again, yeah, because they'll tough. play a stretch run against the Padres and the Dodgers. I think it'll be harder for them. But still, they're only, what, 24 wins away? They have to go 24 and 41, 51, 61, 62. So, yeah, not, they can basically play 500 ball. The Giants can. So maybe we should put the, the Giants in there, too. What about the Astros, too? They're 66 and 46 now. Um, they're playing the Rockies, the Angels, the Royals, the Ma- the Mariners, the Royals, the Rangers. I mean, they do. Seems pretty easy. I, I think that they might be my horse in this race. Okay. Thanks, Emily. Thank you. And thanks for your text to the Air Comfort Service. Text line 65780. We mentioned the Giants with a Major League Best 71 wins. How are they doing it? That's next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. (laughs) 
808 in St. Louis, your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler. Michelle and Randy with you. And Michelle, one of the things we talked about this year is with the injuries that the Cardinals have incurred, there hasn't been a tremendous amount of depth. And Mike Schilt has pretty much put the line, the same lineup out there on a regular basis because the bench is not very good. Last night, the Sacramento River Cats, the AAA team for the Giants, started seven players that have been in the majors. One of the responses to the lineup when it was posted on Twitter was the Sacramento River Cats would finish ahead of Colorado and Arizona in the NL West. Not only do they have players that played in the majors, but Steven Duggar had a great season in the majors. Evan Longoria is rehabbing. Jason Vossler, who beat the Cardinals a couple of times when the Giants played them. Jalen Davis started in the outfield a lot for San Francisco this year. A 71-win teams. Mauricio Dubon was their starter in center field on opening day. Chadwick Tromp has been a big league catcher for a lot of this season. Tyler Beatty has been a big league starter. And when you look at what they've been able to do this year in terms of getting players into games... They play Buster Posey. We talk about uh, Yachty playing every day, Mm -hmm. right? Buster Posey has been an all-star catcher. I I would argue that the two best catchers in Major League Baseball during the 2010 to 2020 era were Posey and Molina. Posey now is at a point, and he's about 30, 31 years old. He plays two days, takes a day off. Plays two days, takes a day off. Plays two days, takes a day off. And they've got a kid named Kirk Casale, who in his first six games this year, he caught shutouts. He's got a 738 OPS for them. He's been hot. They get people off the street like Mike Yastrzemski and Alex Dickerson. What you need to do is get a bunch of players. And the Giants are good because they're deep. And if they have an injury to the group that's playing now on the 71-win team, all they have to do is go to Sacramento, and they'll bring up somebody who's really good. The Cardinals have not done a good job in finding six-year free agents or people off the scrap heap. And while the Cardinals have not been good, nobody's been a better team at that than the Giants have. So of the 10 position players who took in a bat for the Giants on opening night, eight of them have been placed on the injured list at least once during the 2021 season. And that doesn't even include the injuries that they've dealt with from a pitching perspective. And you're right, in addition to the depth and being able to have a next man up mentality and have that next man up be able to be productive and successful for them, they've had a resurgence of their veteran guys like, Mm -hmm. like Buster Posey. And depth is so critical for any team, but when I try to swing this back to the Cardinals side of this, the last time the Cardinals won the World Series, look at what was a huge a huge contributing factor to them winning. It was the Memphis Mafia. It was the guys that they were able to call up that when they got you know, their shoulder tapped, they went in and they were successful for the team. And I think the Cardinals have done that this season, but there was a lot of guys that came up that were kind of thrown into the fire and that maybe could have used a little bit more seasoning. Yes, I'm looking at you, Johan Oviedo. Mm-hmm. And it just, it hasn't worked out for them in the manner in which it's worked out for other teams like the Giants. But I think that that needs to be a huge focus for them as they look to 2022 is how do we make sure that we have more depth so that when injuries like this do occur, we're not going to be sinking. We can tread water. And I think it's not unfair to say that because of the middle infield with DeYoung and Edmund, the Cardinals don't even have eight good everyday players. I'm not going to say that with his 198 batting average and his 600, uh, 665 OPS, I'm not going to say 
that Paul DeYoung is good. I'm not going to say that Tommy Edmond with a 669 OPS, who was a, a leadoff hitter for much of the season, I'm, I'm not going to say that he's a winning championship-type major league player. So while the Cardinals might have a half dozen of those guys, the Giants have like 15 that, that could do that. The, the Giants' two backup infielders, Dubon, if you played him at shortstop, he would be the Cardinals' number one shortstop. And Donovan Solano is their number one second baseman. If you took, and by the way, Dubon's in AAA right now. If you took uh, Dubon to play short and Tommy Listella to play second, both of those guys would start for the Cardinals. Mm-hmm. They're, they're backup guys in San Francisco. That's where the Cardinals have real problems is a lack of depth. And that's why teams like San Francisco and the Dodgers win is because they have a ton of good players. Well, you also mentioned uh, the way that they deployed Buster Posey this season, which not only kept him fresh, but it's given them a chance to audition mm-hmm. other guys. So whether it's injury or them uh, spacing things out, they've gotten a chance to see what these young guys can do for them in a less, what's the word? I'm like a less pressurized manner. It's it's like they weighted them in in yeah. a lot of ways. And when you talk, and last time it seems like every time we talk to Mo, we talk about the modern game in mm-hmm. some way, shape, form, or manner. And the modern game includes going out and identifying good players at the minor league level, not your own, got to do that too, (laughs) but other people's minor league players that you can grab as six-year free agents and turn them into productive major leaguers. And the Cardinals are not doing a particularly good job of that right now. Congratulations to the first-place Giants, who are. That's our fresh take here on 101 ESPN. Coming up, NFL training camp's underway. A lot of stories and time for NFL Four Downs next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. Time for four downs in the NFL. First down. Michelle, last year after the Saints were eliminated from the playoffs, actually earlier this year in January, they asked their wide receiver, Michael Thomas, who had missed significant time with an ankle injury, to have surgery on said ankle. He delayed, 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 and finally, in June, had the ankle surgery with the belief that he would be ready for training camp. Well, he was not ready for training camp. (laughs) And then the other day he tweeted, they tried to damage your reputation. You saved Mm -hmm. theirs by not telling your side of the story. Seems pretty cut and dried here that Michael Thomas should have had surgery for whatever reason. He wanted to rehab without the surgery. And now he isn't available for the Saints. They don't have their best receivers. And there's a rift between he and the club, which has been going on over the course of the last couple of years because of various injuries and his inability to play. But now it seems like in a cryptic way, he's criticizing the organization. And it looks like just from not hearing real concrete words from him or them, looks like he is unhappy enough that he would want out of New Orleans. And he set the all time record a couple of years ago, most receptions for a season in NFL history. I really don't like the cryptic quote on socials. If you want to say something, say it. Yeah. You know, right. don't don't throw up something like that that has you potentially pointing fingers at the organization. If you think that they had some play in this that you don't like, say it. 
Because by you yeah. posting that, you're just going to invite more questions and you're just bringing more attention to the situation where if you really want to get your side of the story out there, have an interview with somebody and say it. And it seems pretty cut and dried. The team, he, he had an ankle injury. It lingered all season last year. They knew about it. They asked him to get surgery right away. He said no. They said, well, you're not going to be ready for training camp. He said, well, I'll rehab it. Has the surgery in June. And look, he's not ready for training camp. Maybe he'll be ready for the season. But will that be as a member of the Saints? Uh, We'll find out. Second down. And maybe, maybe, Randy, Aaron Rodgers might head there. That was some speculation from a former teammate of his, but we can talk about that later, and you're killing me, Smalls. All right, well, let's go. Let's head to Philly, the city of brotherly love. So their coach, Nick Sirianni, said that he and his staff look at four key attributes when evaluating quarterbacks. Not so much four pillars, but four key attributes when they're evaluating quarterbacks, including their quarterback, Jalen Hurts. These attributes are decision-making, accuracy, ability to create, and leadership. So... Maybe Jalen Hurts falls into some of those categories. I don't know if he falls into all of them, at least not right now. But I think a lot of people are wondering about another quarterback and if he fits those four key attributes that the Eagles are looking for in their quarterback, and that's Deshaun Watson. So he's been tied to the Eagles. The latest that we heard with Deshaun potentially being on the move was a few days ago when there was a report that talks were heating up between the Eagles and the Texans on Deshaun Watson. He has since practiced with the Texans, but if... The Eagles and Nick Sirianni truly believe that they need all of these attributes in their starting quarterback. I don't know how you could really think leadership applies to someone like Deshaun Watson. Because I don't know if he walks into that locker room and commands the respect of all of the guys in there. If you have a group of players that are willing to follow Deshaun Watson, you're in big trouble. That's a really good point. (laughs) That's a really good point. And maybe some of the players are thinking... It's our job to win. If this is the situation we're going to be put in, we're just going to go with it and try to pull the rope the same way. But I think it would be very hard to get a collective group of people on the same page when it comes to Deshaun Watson. Yeah. And it's interesting with those four. So decision-making, accuracy, ability to create leadership. Yep. You've got Russell Wilson. You've got Aaron Rodgers. His teammates love him. Yes, of course. You've got Mahomes. Yep. I would put maybe Josh Allen in the mix there. Yeah, he can. He can definitely. Yeah, he, he's accurate now. Yeah, he, what a turnaround he, with his accuracy. Yeah, he's shown it. Um, that many guys Brady? have Brady. Brady. Does he really have the ability to create though? When something isn't there, he, he certainly can make throws. But he's not a guy that's going to go on the move and create a play for you though. He he's, ha- he's capable of doing it. He his, just doesn't do it all the time. And obviously, his decision making. And his accuracy and his uh, leadership are beyond reproach. So sure. even if, if he doesn't create with his legs, point is there's not many guys that fit that that group of qualifications. Can I throw another name in there? Yeah. What about Dak? Dak is absolutely, yeah. As long as his ankle isn't sideways. Correct. If he's healthy, he's definitely got all four key attributes. Yeah, but, but not many right now, can you say, have... Would you put Baker in that group? That's a really good one. I will. I. He's hard he's to got, put him in now. He's got a little bit in every bucket, but I wouldn't say every bucket is full. That's a good way to put it. You know? Yeah. So I would put him. I would put him on the JV team as far as uh, hey, the I, four key attributes. Like I, he's capable of doing it, but yeah. I need to see it more. He and his former Oklahoma teammate Kyler Murray both. Yes. 
Kyler too. Third down. Well, Michelle, one of the things that the New England Patriots did during the offseason was go out and sign a couple of free agent tight ends because they want to replicate what they had, at least on the field, with Rob Gronkowski and Aaron Hernandez. You really don't want to replicate off the field with Aaron Hernandez. Well, maybe some people do, but I wouldn't, and I don't think they do. But Hunter Henry, who has always been hurt with the Chargers, is in camp with New England and has a shoulder injury, and they say, uh, Adam Schefter reports that he's going to miss a couple of weeks, but this has to be pretty scary for the Patriots and Bill Belichick that the guy that they really wanted to build their offense around as one of their two guys in their two tight end package, Hunter Henry is already hurt and it's reasonable to expect that he's going to be hurt more. It's really difficult to build around a team where you don't have a quarterback that elevates guys and Cam Newton at this stage of his career doesn't Mac Jones. We don't know if he's going to, Rather than go out and get legitimate big-time playmakers, they got people that are average, a little bit above average. They still don't have a great player, a great playmaking player on that offense, and they're really at a deficit without Hunter Henry. Fourth down. Let's talk about Lamar Jackson, Randy. So he came down with COVID again. And he just got off the COVID list. And you're probably thinking, wait, didn't he just have COVID last season? And he did. He was infected with COVID-19 twice in the past eight months. So he was asked after he came off the COVID list about whether he's going to get the vaccine or not. And here's what Lamar Jackson had to say. I mean, you know, I, I just got off the COVID list. You know, I, you know, I got to talk to my team doctors and, you know, try to see how they feel about it. You know, um, keep learning as much as I can about it and we'll go from there. We'll see. We'll see. Talking to the doctors. We'll see. So why is Lamar non-committal about getting the vaccine if he's had COVID twice now in the past eight months? I feel it's a personal decision. You know, I'm just going to worry about that with my family, you know, um, keep my feelings to my family and myself. Uh, I'm focused on getting better right now. You know, I can't dwell on that right now, how everybody else feels. Just trying to get back in a great routine. So John Harbaugh, the Ravens coach, revealed that Lamar Jackson's Jackson is one of the few players on the Ravens that hasn't been vaccinated. The Ravens actually entered training camp with a 90% player vaccination rate, which if you're John Harbaugh, you feel pretty good about that. But this is your franchise. This is your starting quarterback. And I wonder how head coaches across the league are feeling about this and dealing with this because it is a personal decision. But you're going to have to deal with enough potentially from an injury standpoint or a player availability standpoint if you're a coach and you don't want someone on your team, whether it's Lamar Jackson or someone else, not to be available because they have COVID-19. And maybe he thinks he's building up antibodies. I don't know. Like he said, it's a personal decision. But the fact of the matter is, is that 99.9% of the people that are being hospitalized right now for COVID are unvaccinated. So if... I would think, heck, they're in Baltimore. They can get Johns Hopkins doctors to talk to him about COVID, right? (laughs) Yeah. And the vaccine. So hopefully when he does talk to the doctors, he'll listen. Hopefully, yes. But I would have hoped that he would have already had those conversations before August 10th. But, But you can still get COVID even if you're vaccinated. But you would just hope that... The players who are unvaccinated understand that they could potentially get really, really sick from this and right. be out for a well, longer period of time, which not only affects the, te- the the person and their health and the team, but you don't know what that's going to do to you from a long-term standpoint. It could uh, affect your future it, as an athlete. COVID screwed the Ravens last year. Yeah, that's right. So, And he was one of the guys that got it. 
So you would think that they would want to do everything they can, if nothing else, just to avoid the league protocols, which are a hassle. Mm-hmm. But like we said about him, it's everybody's personal choice, and it's his personal choice. So he can do what he wants. We're Ravens. Yeah, Steelers are, yeah, I think Big Ben's have vaccinated. So Steelers are probably in a little bit better shape. Uh, that was Four Downs on 101 ESPN. Coming up, we've got The Fight. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. Welcome to the fight on Character and Smallman. In the red corner, average Joe listener. And in the blue corner, the undisputed king of morning drive. Please welcome Randy Character. Let's fight on Carriker and Smallman on this Tuesday. It is 834. That time check is brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler. Kyle is Randy's challenger today. Good morning, Kyle. How are you? Uh, pretty good. You seem thrilled, Kyle, to be on the show. I got to tell you. Just got off work, so I'm a little tired. Oh, well, uh, I don't know if that's going to work in your favor going against Randy because he is energized and ready to go. Uh, Kyle, I'm going to pull a Danny Mac. What do you do for a living that just got you getting off work at 8.30 a.m.? Home health care. I do overnights. Oh, nice. Very cool. All right, well, here we go on the fight. Good luck to you. Thanks. All right, question number one. On this day in 1981, Pete Rose broke Stan Musial's National League hit record with his 3,631st career hit. Who is the all-time hit leader in the American League? Is it Carl Yastrzemski, Ty Cobb, or Derek Jeter? Uh, I'll go with Yaz. On this day in 1934, Babe Ruth announced who would be playing his final season as a full-time player. Ruth is only one of four players in MLB history to hit three home runs in a single World Series game, and he did it twice. The list includes Ruth, Reggie Jackson, Pablo Sandoval, and which former Cardinal? Lance Berkman, Albert Pujols, or Scott Rowland? Pujols. Question number three for you, Kyle. What is the only team in the NFL to neither host nor play in the Super Bowl? Is it the Cleveland Browns, the Jacksonville Jaguars, or the Detroit Lions? Um, the Lions. No, it's, oh, shoot. I think it's Jacksonville, actually. Final answer? Yeah. Okay. And who was the last Cardinals pitcher to finish the season with the most wins in the National League? Was it Matt Morris, Miles Michaelis, or Adam Wainwright? Uh, I'm sorry, what was the question again? Who was the last Cardinals pitcher to finish the season with the most wins in the National League? Matt Morris, Miles Michaelis, Adam Wainwright. Uh, it was Michaelis. Okay, score check. Waving Randy in, who's waiting patiently in the hallway. Randy, you look like you're going golfing today. Are you, in fact going golfing today. Yes, I am. Our friends at the Ascension Charity Classic with a uh, media day, so that'll be fun over at Norwood. Our friends uh, Favaz and John Eula next door are going to be out there, so perfect, good time. Sounds great. You're wearing your PGA Championship polo. You look spiffy today. Thank you. Randy, please say good morning to Kyle, who just got off work. Kyle, good morning, and uh, thank you for working that shift for us, man. Uh, thank you. 
All right. I'm ready to go. Thanks for listening. Thanks for playing. <laughs> All right, Randy. Question number one. On this day in 1981, Pete Rose broke Stan Musial's National League hit record with his 3,631st career hit. Who is the all-time hit leader in the American League? In the American League, I'm going to guess it was uh, Ty Cobb with 4190. On this day in 1934, Babe Ruth announced he would be playing his final season as a full-time player. Ruth is only one of four players in MLB history to hit three home runs in a single World Series game, and he did it twice. The list includes Ruth, Reggie Jackson, Pablo Sandoval, and which former Cardinal? Albert in 2011. Hard to forget that game. Randy, what is the only team in the NFL to neither host nor play in the Super Bowl? Uh, so the only city to neither host nor play in. Let's see. Jacksonville has. Houston has. Um, Tennessee has played in one. Seattle, San Francisco, Arizona, L.A. Um, so the, uh, okay, the Raiders have played in it. Um, okay, I'll just go with the teams because Detroit has hosted. Jacksonville, Houston. Um, hold on here. Let me just go through the divisions. Atlanta, Carolina, um, Tampa Bay now has, obviously. Um, and Atlanta, Carolina, Tampa, New Orleans, they have. Uh, Green Bay has. Minnesota has. The uh, Bears have. Packers, Lions, Bears, Vikings. So they all have. Uh, you've got the Giants, Washington, Philly. Uh, why don't I just do the lifeline to get it out of the way here? Cleveland Browns, Jacksonville Jaguars, Detroit Lions. Uh, that would be the Cleveland Browns, yeah. And who was the last Cardinals pitcher to finish the season with the most wins in the National League? Last Cardinal pitcher. I think when Wayno won his 22, um, that was before Matty Moe won his 22. So I will go with, I don't think anybody's done it since Wayno. So I, I will go with Adam Wainwright. All right. Was it Kyle or was it Randy to take home the W today? Emily, ring the bell. The winner and still champion of the fight, Randy Carricker. The fight sponsored by Ryan Kelly and HeroLoan.com. Check out how they help veterans and service members at the new and improved HeroLoan.com. Sorry, Kyle. Randy just edged you out. Randy got three correct. Kyle got two correct. The all-time hit leader in the American League is Ty Cobb. 4,191 hits. Let's see. Babe Ruth is oh my gosh. Babe is Babe Ruth is only one of four players in Major League Baseball history to hit three home runs in a single World Series game. The list is Babe Ruth, Reggie Jackson, Pablo Sandoval, and Albert Pujols, of course, in Game Three of the 2011 World Series. The only NFL team to neither host nor play in the Super Bowl is the Factory of Sadness. It's the Cleveland Browns, <laughs> and the last Cardinals pitcher to finish the season with the most wins in the National League. Is Miles Michaelis. Oh. In 2018, 18 wins. He was tied for first with John Lester and Max Scherzer. Kyle, thanks so much for listening. Thanks for playing and enjoy going to bed, I guess. <laughs> thanks. Thank you, Kyle. Good to have you with us on 101 ESPN. Kyle fired up. Tough. 
to yeah. contain the enthusiasm that Kyle had. Yeah. But he just got off of work, so he's probably pretty tired, right? Yeah. I mean, so. through the roof energy. That's the fight on 101 ESPN coming up. And by the way, at the top of the hour, we're going to hear Michelle's uh, reminiscences <laughs> of the weekend at Canton. And we're going to give away tickets. We've got... Uh, Bud Bash tickets for next Tuesday. Bud Bash is sold out. So the only place to get Bud Bash tickets for next Tuesday with the David Freeze bobblehead is here at 101 ESPN. So at the bottom of the next hour, we're going to find a way to get you t- some tickets for that, too. You're going to want to go to that if you collect Cardinals memorabilia at all. You want this David Freeze bobblehead. Klaibs is next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. Mike Claiborne joins us as he does every Tuesday here on 101 ESPN. You can hear Claibs on the Cardinal radio broadcasts on KMOX and the Cardinal Network. And, of course, you can check out his work at ClaibsOnline.com. He's with us on the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line this morning. Good morning, sir. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. First of all, I'm envious of you and Michelle going over to Canton, man. I, that was something I really had circled on the calendar. And it sounded and it looked like it was a great time to be had by all over there. So I'm envious. Claves, it was amazing, not only because we were there to celebrate Isaac Bruce, but because it was like a high school reunion, getting to watch all yeah. of those guys who hadn't been together in so long and who achieved something so amazing and are tied together forever, get back in a room together. It was really special to see that. Well, I, I went for Marshall and went for Orlando and the, the after party where you see, as you mentioned, all those people, they get together and it is like a homecoming. And, you know, I don't know how many more times we'll go back there. But, I mean, I, I think uh, Tory Holt's got a good chance and I know there's some momentum for Dick Vermeil. But, you know, once that's over, I, I don't think there's a reason for me or, to go back. I mean, I, I mean, maybe London Fletcher, you know. London Fletcher, I think, is a Hall of Famer, but that's down the road also. So, uh, But I was really happy to see and check out what you guys were doing over there. It looked like it was a time to really um, sit back and just live the memories of what all those guys meant to St. Louis. Claves, you've covered St. Louis sports for a long time. I was telling Randy, I don't know if there's a, a team that we've covered that had so many players that were not only nice but dynamic personalities and that would say stuff. Is that the most interesting team or collection of players that you've covered in St. Louis, or where does it rank? Boy, that, that's a good question. You know, um, that that Joel Quinville team that was really good, it was in 99, I guess, they had some interesting personalities too, with Pronger and Hall, no, and Pronger and McKinnis and some other guys like that. Uh, Grant Fuhr, no, not Grant Fuhr wasn't on that team, uh, but you know there were a lot of good individuals. But yeah, you know what, Michelle, I think you may be right, and, and I think because of the way football and the, the access is different in football than it is in the other sports, as far as you know how they make guys available to you now compared to then, where. You, you could go in the locker room virtually every day and, you know, guys would stick around a little bit, but yeah, they, they were fun guys to cover. Um, and I think the fact that because they were all offensive driven, you know, there just was something about them that made them special. Klaibs, I got to introduce Michelle to one of our favorites and I hadn't seen him in more than 20 years, but I know you know him well. And I want you to tell Michelle about Toby Wright. <laughs> oh, well, I remember when he, you know, he was one of the original members here in St. Louis. And, and Toby, Toby was a better hitter than he was tackler, okay? 
I mean, he would he would launch his body into somebody. But you know, he was a guy who had a lot of confidence. Uh, you know, he was fearless. I mean, as a safety, he you know was just a he was a like I said, he would launch himself into people. Now the problem was. He, he was hurt a lot because of the way he played the game. But one of my favorite people, it was, as we like to say, he was a very good soundbite. Yeah, he, he was, and and still is, by the way. <laughs> so let's move on to the Cardinals. They take two of three from the Royals. They can't complete a sweep again. And this team is 500, Mike, and I, I, I always go back, not always, but with this particular team, here we are in almost mid-August, and it's the Bill Parcells line. You are what your record says you are. Exactly. There's no no question. We've talked about it a few times on this on this segment. It is what it is, and, and I don't know how you you turn it around. Uh, you know, it's funny. Cardinals went two out of three, and the one thing we talk more about is the one they lost, and that seems to be the the high water issue with this team, where every time you think prosperity is just around the corner, you have a setback, and you just roll your eyes and just say, "What in the hell is going on?" And, and Sunday was a great example of it. But, you know, you keep saying, well, they're 500, you never know. Yeah, you do. You know, it's going to be hard. I mean, because you're running out of games, okay? And this week is an important week. Well, you're going to play Pittsburgh, all right? So you should sweep them, okay? There's no two out of three here. You have to beat them all three. Then you go into Kansas City, okay? You took two out of three against them. Kansas City is good enough to take two out of three against you. But you need to sweep them. And then you have Milwaukee coming in. Now, this is a team, you know, that I think you might be out of reach of, but you have to make an impact some way, somehow. And, uh, you know, if if you don't have this, I think it's nine games that you have in, coming up, you have to go 8-1 and one minimum. You have to go 8-1 and one minimum in order to have any ray of hope. Because, you know, if we had the same conversation in June, you say, well, you know, we got time. Well, we're in August, so we don't have that kind of time because we haven't shown the ability to stay as consistent as they need to be in order to be in contention. Clabe, speaking of do you know, do you know on Paul DeYoung? Because he's hitting 198 right now, and we've seen Paul DeYoung hit 30 home runs a year back in 2019. But what do you, where do you stand on Paul DeYoung? Because it seems like we will say, well, you know, he had an injury this year. He had COVID last year. It just seems like we're always trying to qualify something with Paul DeYoung. So where are you at with him right now? Well, yeah, there's an annual excuse that you have where, as you mentioned, COVID injury, but, you know, even in the year he hit 30 home runs, he really tailed off, you know, uh, the latter part of the season. Uh, I've always felt like he gives away at bats, where once he gets two strikes, you can get, them, get him to climb the ladder. And, I mean, they normally get him out on four seamers up or throw him sliders away. And I, I just I can't put my finger on it, but it just seems like there's no battling if you have two strikes and then again a guy's got a good slider, you can't pull it. So try and file it off. Make him give in to you. And, and the good hitters do that. Where okay, this guy's got some light top stuff today, but if I can file a couple of pitches off, maybe he'll come in and maybe he'll miss inside, or maybe he'll give me something that I can just go the other way with. That, that's not. It's it's do or die with him, you know. And I think you got to be able to expand your your hitting scope more to be effective. And, you know, the strikeouts have always been there, okay? He, he's walked a little bit more this year, 
But the strikeouts have been the bugaboo. Now, I know some people don't measure strikeouts. I do. I, I think strikeouts are devastating to a ball club uh, in, in the order. If you have a guy that, okay, here's a walking strikeout, we can get this guy. You know, when you have too many of those guys in your order, then it's going to be hard to win. And in his case, it, it just the, the pattern has not changed. And I don't know whether that's he's not, you know he and the hitting coach are, aren't on the same page, or maybe he's listening to too many people. But it is frustrating because I think he's a better player than what we've seen. But we're at the point now where okay, here's another guy that needs to sink or swim, and, and right now he's not swimming as much as he'd like to. Last time we saw Jack Flaherty was on Memorial Day. He'll be back on Thursday. And if if there's a spark for this team, it can come from Jack Flaherty. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, my concern is I would have, and I'm going to talk to Mike Schilt about it today, why Thursday instead of Friday. Because on Friday, you, uh, you know, he doesn't even need to walk near the bat rack. Mm-hmm. Friday, you're playing a team in Kansas City that they've broken through and they won a game, and you you got to put them down early. And Friday gives him a chance to pitch against Milwaukee the fight the, the, the next week. Um, it, it, you know, and I'm sure there's a logical reason. You know, that's why they pay those guys a lot of money. But it just seems like it would be better suited for everyone if he pitched on Friday instead of Thursday. Because hey, listen, if you can't beat Pittsburgh without Jack Flaherty, you you have bigger problems. Yeah, right. Hey, Claves, one more thing. Is Alex Reyes gassed at this point? I think he might have hit the wall. You know, I, I think, you know, this is a lot of work for him. You, you think about his career, Randy, and he just hasn't had that many opportunities to pitch this late. And, and you know, some guys have to get their second breath, and I think he will. Uh, you know, one of the things I've noticed is, he, he he's taking a little bit longer between pitches. And I think sometimes when guys think too much instead of pitch, they put themselves in a position where, you know, the, their control isn't what it needs to be. Uh, but I, I think he'll be okay. I, I think the question now is, is he going to be a starter next year or are you going to leave him in the bullpen? I know there's been a lot of rhetoric about that. Um, and maybe that's kind of gotten to him as well. But I, I think you make a good observation that maybe – the 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 way you 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 come out of the bullpen, you're up and down. You you play, you pitch two, maybe three days in a row, and then you're off for three or whatever. That that up and down sometimes can kind of sometimes mess with you. But I, I think the fact that he's gone longer this season uh, is probably something that, that's happening to him. I think it happened to Dylan Carlson. I think it happened to Tommy Edmond. I think a lot of these guys have hit the wall and are trying to find the reset button. You can follow Mike Claiborne on Twitter at Claves Online. You can check out ClavesOnline.com. And the website's great. I always love what you have there. What do you have coming up this week? Well, we're actually going to visit with Howard Richards. We were going to do it last week. Missouri football is underway as far as practices are concerned. So we'll talk with him and talk a little bit about his NFL experiences. Uh, Dr. Rick Lehman, we're going to visit with him post-Olympics. You know, Dr. Rick was very instrumental in Alex Felix, Allison Felix's uh, resurgence and her ability to come back and win another medal. So we'll talk about him and the whole Olympic experience. You got Rammer talking with Keith Costas every every week about you know what's going on around the Major League Baseball, and Rammer and Joe Roderick do their daily card every day, the Cardinals card. So <laughs> there, there's plenty of stuff to go with, and uh, we're going to expand and, and get into uh, the entertainment scope here. We'll have some interesting guests coming up here in the next couple of weeks, uh, people that you would certainly recognize from an entertainment standpoint. 
Love it. So you can check it out on Twitter, and you can head to the website, clavesonline.com. We always like talking to you. Thanks so much for the time. We appreciate it. And uh, let's go get a win in Pittsburgh. Well, we need three, but we'll start with one today. <laughs> Sounds good. See you, brother. Take care. All right. You guys have a great week. Take care. You too. That is our friend Mike Claiborne joining us every Tuesday morning here on 101 ESPN. That's Michelle. I'm Randy. Coming up, today's big thing. Michelle is going to give her highlights of our weekend in Canton next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. To the nameless voice that called me two weeks before the draft in 1994 to let me know that the NFL wasn't checking for me. They didn't like me. I know you're alive. I know you're listening. I pray God keep you alive for this day. How you like me now? Former St. Louis Ram Isaac Bruce inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame Saturday night, inducted into immortality, and uh, quoting Cool Mo D. How do you like me now? <laughs> Pretty good. I, 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 we have to find out who, by the way, that phone call was from. Yes, and I love seeing that side of Isaac Bruce because he's so unflappable, mm-hmm. and he's such a great person, and and he always is so respectful. And to know that we know that he has that competitive fire within him. But just to think that there was something all of these years buried deep down below that someone said something to him that had propelled him forward in his career and that he was praying to God to keep this person alive (laughs) so that he could see him enter the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I love that fire from 80. So we got there Thursday night. We did the show on Friday morning and then had a chance to tour the Hall of Fame during the day on Friday. And kind of bounce around Canton a little bit. And then on Saturday, we had, uh, what was, oh, the parade. And then we went and talked to Isaac a little bit before his induction and then went to the induction and had a chance interspersed throughout to talk to various members of the former Rams. So I want you to give kind of your your favorite memories so far of the weekend. Gosh, there's so many. It's hard to boil it down to just a few bullet points. But like I mentioned with Mike Claiborne last hour, I think the best thing for me was just being a fly on the wall to watching all of these unbelievable athletes and brilliant football minds that were a part of one of the most special teams in NFL history get together and with no cameras around, no microphones around, just tell stories and reminisce about the inner workings of that season and how everything went down. And, you know, it was really cool to see the way that they reacted to one another because we were at the hotel and we were at the the after party after Isaac's um, speech and enshrinement and just to see the way these guys reacted when they saw one another they're brothers for life and, and they probably hadn't seen each other in several several years and this is coming off a global pandemic too so mm-hmm. it's really changed everybody in a lot of ways but I think these guys always understood what they had in one another and what they had in that team. But as time has passed and that team really still does stand the test of time, I think they really appreciate what they were able to be a part of. And while they appreciate it, one of the overarching aspects to talking to that group is to a person, they're all disappointed that they didn't win more Super Bowls That's because right. they all thought that they had enough talent to be a dynasty. And for various reasons, they only won one (laughs) Super Bowl. But all of them think 
that they were good enough to win a lot more. That's right. When we talked to Ricky Prohl on Friday, and there's that famous quote of him in the tunnel before the Super Bowl versus the Rams versus the Patriots, where he said, there, what did he say? There's a gonna, dynasty starts tonight. A dynasty starts tonight. Exactly. And he wasn't wrong because the <laughs> Patriots and Tom Brady and Bill Belichick went on to be a, a for sure dynasty. But I think most people on that team or involved in that organization thought that the Rams were going to go on and be a force for a really long time. And obviously we here in St. Louis know that not only was that not the case, but no one could have foreseen the depths that the Rams would fall to. And that all started because of a very public falling out between Mike Martz and Jay Zygmunt. Mm -hmm. And it was good to see those two guys (laughs) sitting next to each other, trading fishing stories, showing each other fish that they've caught and having apparently buried the hatchet and they seem to be good with each other. Yeah, it seems like whatever issues anyone on that team had with any certain person that it's all done because like you said, we finished the show and we go out into the lobby of the hotel and there's Dick Vermeil, Jay Zygmunt and Mike Martz sitting around asking us to come sit with them. And they're showing us photos on their phones (laughs) of their various fishing uh, adventures. But they were reminiscing on everything too. And it was only positive. So that's great. And it's amazing. Dick Vermeil is older than 80 now but he's so sharp. He's in such great condition. He looks great. It's amazing how great he's doing at his age. He's unbelievable. If you ever needed an excuse to drink wine, Dick Vermeil yep. is it. You need to go online, Vermeil Wines, and find out. I believe he likes a red. Did he say the Cabernet yeah. is his, mm-hmm. his drink of choice? You need to get it because whatever he's doing, I need to do. He's like the J-Lo of head football coaches. He yeah, has he not aged an ounce. He looks amazing. And, yeah, that was certainly one of the highlights for me is just getting to talk to him because I can understand why so many players – loved him so much and would have done whatever he said. He is so captivating when you speak to him. It's like you're the only person in the room Mm -hmm. and he has a way of making you connect with him instantly to where you trust him. And if he told me I'm going to need you to go ahead and do this, I'd be like, yep, coach, whatever you need. I've got, I've got you. And he's just an incredible motivator and an incredible leader. He told a great story. Trent Green was there to support Isaac in his induction to the Hall of Fame. And Trent was the All-American guy. He would have been David Freeze times five if he would have quarterbacked that team to a Super Bowl like Kurt did because he's just such a charismatic, good-looking guy mm-hmm. playing quarterback. He he would have been... Local. Yeah, a huge hero in this town. But DV was telling the story, DV and Jay Zygmunt, about when they signed Trent Green, when they were recruiting him they were going to have dinner at tony's downtown Mm -hmm. and dv ran a red light had a collision his car was flipped over and (laughs) so he gets out of his car he he climbs out he's injured he goes over to make sure that the other people are okay gets up to the lady who had been into in the other car and in the accident and says are you okay and she said coach he said yeah she said you aren't going to make me watch Tony Banks for another year, are you? <laughs> right after they'd had a major car accident and his car's on its roof. And so he makes it over to the dinner a little bit late with Trent. And he says, and I'm, I'm looking at my arm at the table at Tony's picking shards of glass out of my arm. <laughs> but 
Trent Green saw how tough he was and how insistent he was that Trent Green be a part of the Rams because DV made it from a car accident wow. in down St. Louis, downtown St. Louis over to uh, the, the meeting with Trent Green, and obviously they ultimately did sign him. Yeah, there's no question there how badly he wants you to, to join the <laughs> right. team, right? Um, I think another thing for me, too, and this was something that I felt all weekend, but so specifically the night of the actual induction and the revealing of the bust when we were in the mm-hmm. crowd watching the Hall of Famers give their speech, there was such a heavy Steelers contingent there. And any time the Steelers were mentioned or any of the Steeler guys got on stage, they went crazy. They all had the terrible towels and they were going nuts. And it really broke my heart a little bit to think that St. Louis would would really never have that again. Like, we know we're not an NFL market anymore. And to be there and not only be reliving the greatest show on turf, but to see the passion of football fans and just realize how bittersweet it is that we're never really going to experience that again and what a good football market this is. And every person that we talked to that was a member of that team, whether it was on air or off air, told us how much St. Louis meant to them and what it was like playing in that dome and how loud the fans were and about dome field advantage at that time and the way St. Louis showed up and supported them. And it just was really a bummer to realize that this is the end of the road. Maybe Dick Vermeil gets in. Maybe Tory Holt gets in. We certainly hope for that. But this could be the end of the road for a positive St. Louis NFL moment. Ricky Prohl told us that after playing in Arizona, Chicago, St. Louis, Indianapolis, Carolina, and then coaching in Carolina, that St. Louis football fans were the best that he ever dealt with in the NFL. And what Pittsburgh has is an ownership that has instilled a culture where the team is reflective of the city and the yes. Rooney family really cares about that, that their team matches the city. They care about the city that they're in. We, unfortunately, had the one owner in the NFL that hated his city. There were <laughs> 20 cities that had owners that flirted with Los Angeles, but the only guy that went there was our guy, unfortunately. And you're right, we won't have it again. And when you see all the Cleveland fans, for for it being the factory of sadness, and it's right down the road from Cleveland, Canton is, but the Browns fans are so excited about their team this year. And you see a, a, a franchise like Dallas, and they know that their franchise isn't going anywhere. And they had people from the 60s and from the 70s and from the 80s and from the 90s, 2000s, that were there this weekend. Yeah. They they have such a magnificent history, as much as I dislike them, they're, but their fans support their team because they know that their ownership, for better or worse, cares about them. And our owner didn't care about us, and he still doesn't care about us. And the league, unfortunately, doesn't care about us. We, I think we can tell a couple of stories. Number one, it wasn't shown on TV because it was during a commercial break, and I put it up on Instagram, but Joe Buck saying... Uh, I, I live in St. Louis, home of the 1999 Super Bowl champion St. Louis Rams. Yeah. So that that was cool. And there were some things that could have even enhanced the night and gotten St. Louis people even more fired up that the league nixed. The yeah. league really is not excited about hearing about St. Louis. Yeah, they, we found out at the after party there were some things that were cut from yeah. the presentation that would have been St. Louis heavy. But if you're the league, why would you want to highlight St. Louis? They're in the rearview mirror, you yeah. know? But if, if people out there that are listening haven't heard Troy Palomalu's speech, I highly recommend that you go listen to it, not only because it was incredible and inspiring, but he talked about the standard being the standard yeah. in Pittsburgh. That's something Mike Tomlin always talks to them about, but 
But the way that they approach things in Pittsburgh is that they want to take on that Yinzer spirit, the spirit of the city and what it means to them to wear that uniform and the black and gold and go out there and leave it all out on the field because they're representing a city and they're trying to take on the identity of Pittsburgh, that tough, hardworking attitude. And to hear him so passionately talk about the culture there and the way that you're, even if you're Troy Polamalu, just a cog in this really big machine that means something so much more than your individual performance. It reminded me a lot of St. Louis, and mm-hmm. that's what we want our teams to be like, too. And the the Rams could have easily had that here and could have been that way for a long time, but that's not what they wanted. It is what it is. That's today's big thing. Randy and Michelle on 101 ESPN. Coming up. Do we rely in baseball too much on analytics or are we overblowing the fact that analytics are hurting the game? That's next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. We often talk here about the Cardinals' use of analytics and how, in my opinion, the Cardinals are paralyzed by the numbers because they tend to overvalue, not that you can overvalue an out when you only have 27, but they give up other opportunities like stealing bases, like hitting and running, other offensive opportunities just so that they can adhere to what the numbers tell them. And that's a big complaint in New York, too. And the Yankees are still six games out of first in the American League's Eastern Division. And they've had a rough year and a big complaint of people in New York. By the way, the Yankees are only two out of the wild card now, so they've gone eight and two. But a big complaint that people have in New York is that the Yankees are too analytical. And recently, Brian Cashman was posed that question. Are, are you guys too analytical and is it hurting you? And I feel like we're a victim of a false narrative. I mean, I, I don't know why, you know, you can watch the Tampa Bay Rays compete against the Los Angeles Dodgers in the World Series last year, and they're more analytical than we are. And yet we're victimized by being too analytical. Every team in this sport, except for a very small few and a small few that aren't analytical or using that tool in that toolbox, it's not the only primary tool, but is a certainly important tool to use for information and decision making. It's just to me a naive false narrative that people throw uh, that really just throw it because they're angry. And the ultimate reasons behind it all is that when you're winning, you know, it's a great play. Everything you're doing is great. You're smart. You know, you're flying high and bouquets are going to flow your way. And when you're not living up to your expectations, then you obviously have the slings and arrows of the reasons why. And so right now, because this team is underperformed, it's because of analytics. Interesting example from Brian Cashman when he cites the Tampa Bay Rays as a reason that analytics are working in baseball because certainly the Tampa Bay Rays lean on analytics and they've put together an unbelievable team. And yeah, they were in the World Series last year. But again, this is the same Tampa Bay Rays team that when they were up one nothing in the sixth inning, there's one out, one on. And Blake Snell, who's cruising, he's allowed just two hits and had only 73 pitches up to that point. They pull him because of analytics. Uh, we all know Nick Anderson comes in. He gives up a double to Mookie Betts. All of a sudden, the Dodgers have a 2-1 lead, and the Rays lose the game. So while analytics certainly gets you to a certain point, I think even the Tampa Bay Rays were too reliant on the numbers, and in that moment, clearly could have gone to the eye test and just gone with baseball smarts to help them make or to determine what should be done in that decision. So, yeah, I think while Brian Cashman can 
accurately use the Rays as a way that analytics is working, there's a pretty big L on the non-analytics side if you're talking about the Rays as well. Right. There is a lot to be said for the eye test and for playing the game athletically. And Tampa Bay and Oakland have evolved, and those are probably the two most noted analytics teams. But offensively, Tampa Bay is scoring a bunch of runs, and they lead their division by a couple of games. Right now, they're third in the American League in runs. Uh, They aren't a huge home run hitting team, although they're fourth. But they're also third in their league in stolen bases. Tampa Bay has 63 stolen bases. Oakland has 55. They're both running a lot and using their athleticism and trying to find other ways to score other than just the home run. And as Cashman notes, the criticism often is that the team is all analytical. Analytics are used here. It's not the end-all and be-all. It's not the governor that drives every decision that people think. And it doesn't matter if you get Aaron Boone on the phone to deny that he does his lineups from the front office because he doesn't. He does his lineups from his chair. And you can get Joe Girardi, the prior manager, or Joe Torrey, the prior manager before that. There's not one of those guys could say they were directed to play a guy in order to play a lineup. It's never happened. And I've been the same general manager every step of the way. But again, none of that's going to matter. The only thing that matters is if we win. And if we win, everybody's happy. And if we lose, and all things are under review and some of it's going to be guilty as charged and accurate but there's a lot of things people don't know and they just kind of fall in line with whatever the comfortable narrative happens to be at that moment in time and even if it's not well i don't think it's necessarily just a comfortable narrative i do think that analytics leads to less entertaining baseball that's my biggest issue sure. it's, it's you need to have great players to win ultimately but the sport to me isn't as attractive with analytics. So at least if you're losing, it can be entertaining. But analytics, by its nature, because you're either going to walk, I don't find entertaining, hit a home run, which is fine, but it's not use of athleticism, or strike out, which is a bad thing. Offensively, that's not good. And when you put a blanket over every single pitcher saying you can't go through a lineup a third time, that's doing your entire club a disservice because ultimately that's going to affect your bullpen. When you don't allow pitchers to go seven innings, get into an eighth inning, ultimately that's going to negatively affect your bullpen. And that's why every time we get to a postseason, teams have to use starters in the bullpen. And I always go back to Tony La Russa and the way that he would look at his players in a multifaceted sense, right? Like, let's go back to David Freeze. And when he went hot in the postseason, he wasn't performing well. Tony La Russa thought about not even putting him in the lineup. And Mark McGuire saw something in him and implored Tony La Russa to stick with him. And we all know the rest of the story. But the analytics would have told you that David Freeze was not the guy to put in that situation. And with most things in life, there needs to be a balance. Do the numbers tell a certain story? Absolutely. But do you have to use common sense and trust your instincts for the game when you make decisions also absolutely where I think now a lot of those decisions are taken away from managers and the numbers are what is going to dictate the move and when we talked to John Mozalek about the Cardinals offense and their approach he called it a high level curriculum and it seems like most clubs around the league are taking a similar approach and it has diluted the game in a lot of ways it's not as exciting and I think that I I just wonder at what point though are teams going to wave the white flag because it doesn't seem like teams are ready are ready to concede at all on the analytic front right and along those lines like you, you talked about Tony we mentioned that the A's have evolved A's starting pitchers lead baseball with 647 innings pitched 
The next two teams, in terms of innings pitched by their starting pitchers, the White Sox with Tony La Russa and the Astros with Dusty Baker. Wow. So in terms of protecting your bullpen and utilizing your starters and allowing them to go through a lineup the third time, I would argue that probably Tony and Dusty are the two least analytics-driven managers, and they're getting the most out of their starting pitchers. That's fascinating. Yeah, and if you want to go ERA, the White Sox are third in starters ERA. The Astros are sixth. So clearly the old school approach is working. (laughs) Seems to be. Yeah, Yeah. and two teams that are leading their division too, right? Wow. But I think front offices have gained a lot of power with the shift to analytics. And again, in most things in life, when you have the power, you're not going to say that you're wrong. You don't want to concede any of the power that you have gained. And which is crazy to me. Because at the end of the day, you're getting judged on wins and losses, not on the deci- who you're dictating decisions to. So if there's some sort of other approach, just a baseball approach or a common sense approach, and it's winning you games, why not blend the two together? That's the key is like Brian Cashman said, it's a tool in the toolbox to be utilized, but don't allow it to be your only tool. Don't take a sledgehammer, an analytic sledgehammer to your organization, which I believe many organizations have. And by the way, I think the Cardinals are one of them. I think they're way overly analytical. When they call their offensive approach a high-level curriculum? That tells you all you need to know. It sure does. That's Michelle. I'm Randy. Hey, you can join the 101 ESPN Bomberito Street Fleet Thursday from 630 to 830 at Cybergs on Gravoy for the Michelob Ultra Putter Challenge. It's a free-to-play indoor game where you can score prizes and win Mick Ultra swag and your chance to win a trip for two to this year's Ryder Cup. Don't miss this Thursday, 630 to 830 with the 101 ESPN Bomberito Street Fleet at Cybergs on Gravoy. Get all the details on the Michelob Ultra Putter Challenge at 101ESPN.com. Coming up, you're killing me, Smalls, on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. Before we get to your Killing Me Smalls, 101 ESPN is your chance to win a four-pack of tickets to next Tuesday night's sold-out Budweiser Bash for the Cardinals-Brewers game on August 17th. Next Tuesday's Budweiser Bash features an exclusive David Freeze bobblehead. Winner must be 21 and over. Tickets courtesy of Budweiser and 101 ESPN. Earlier today on the show, we had ESPN's Kirk Herbstreet, who has written a new book. And we talked to him about the 2010 record-setting crowd at Columbia for ESPN's College Game Day. The question is, and if you are texter number 45 into 65780. The question is, what number one team did Mizzou play that night that they set the record for a crowd at college game day? Who was the number one team that came into Columbia that Missouri beat when college game day was last in Columbia back in 2010? All right, so caller number or texter number 45, Air Comfort Service text line. 65780. You're killing me, Smalls. So, Randy, we were at the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton on Saturday night for Isaac Bruce's induction. But on Sunday night, Peyton Manning went in and he had an incredible speech. There's been a lot of talk about Peyton Manning. But 
The Boston Globe did an interview with Bill Belichick, who had the highest praise for Peyton Manning. He said he is definitely the best quarterback I've coached against. There have been quarterbacks who called their own plays, but it was nowhere near the same as what he did. He basically called every play by adjusting and or changing the play once he saw the defense was doing. He excelled at using the cadence and recognizing blitzes, and more than any one single offensive player, he forced us to change and adapt defensive game plans. He was a remarkable player in this day and age. And it used to be back in my day that all quarterbacks called their own plays. But Tony Dungy and after him, Jim Caldwell. And then when he got to uh, to, to Denver, the, the coaches there, uh, they Gary Kubiak would allow him to actually run practice mm-hmm. on Friday and Saturday. Their walkthrough on Saturday and the, and the Friday practice. And he essentially implemented his own offense and would call his own plays. And it was really confusing for a defensive coach like Belichick because normally there are tendencies that a coach has when he's calling plays. Manning is looking at the defense and saying, okay, what'll work here? So I can totally get where Bill Belichick is coming from. And we heard Omaha enough to know that Manning was doing his own thing at the line of scrimmage. Oh, absolutely. And this just shows how good Brady and Belichick were because Peyton Manning was such a problem and Bill Belichick was having to adjust so much based on Peyton Manning reading the defense. But in his career, Manning was 5-10 and 10 against Brady and Belichick in the regular season, 3-2 and two in the postseason. That's pretty telling too, isn't it? Right. That when the stakes are the highest and you do the most scouting, Manning had his greatest success against them. Do you think we'll see a rivalry like Brady and Manning again? I think there's a chance. Who do you think could be that now? Mahomes and? See, we're, we're waiting for Josh Allen to be that guy, or maybe Kyler Murray can be that guy. Now, you'd like to have both guys be in the same conference, so that's why I brought up Josh Allen first. It could have been and should have been Deshaun Watson, but that's not going to happen now. But if you had with those two quarterbacks skill sets mm-hmm. playing against each other every three years that'd be pretty that would have been pretty cool now i would say mahomes would be the manning in this situation right yes. because he's so likable and tom brady played for the evil empire and the patriots and i would say if you were going to assign the villain role to one of the two of them it was tom brady you can assign a villain role to watson then well <laughs> <laughs> Different sort of villain. Let's not but compare the two. The other thing you have to have is two dominant programs. Exactly. That win all the time. And we know Kansas City is going to be there and win all the time. But who's left in the AFC that you say, okay, that team is going to be there year in and year out for both of these quarterbacks to play important games against each other every year. And who's going to be the quarterback that can play the villain role? Because, mm-hmm. yes, it'll be compelling if it's two young quarterbacks who are at the top of their game going against one another. But I think part of the reason that we loved Manning Brady so much is not only because of their talent level, but because there was someone that you wanted to cheer for on one side or the other. And I think most of us in that scenario cheered for Peyton Manning. Yeah, And Manning was drafted in 98 and Brady was drafted in 2000. So you would hope that that guy that we're talking about to be the foil for Patrick Mahomes would already be there. And... I don't think he is. I, I don't think ultimately Lamar is that guy. That would have been cool. But he he had a down year last year. Maybe it was because of COVID. I don't think Ryan Tannehill is a competitor for Patrick Mahomes. They The Chiefs have just been too dominant. Maybe Lamar Jackson would be the guy. And w- we both know that within two years, it'll be Tua. Oh, yeah, of course. Tua is going to take the Dolphins to the highest of heights. Mm-hmm. 
You're killing me, Smalls. Gosh, I sure hope so. After that, after our conversation with Mike Sando about quarterback tears, I am nervous about yeah. Tua. By the way, one other possibility is Baker Mayfield. Oh yeah. Could build a program there, and Baker, and he could be a great villain too, feeling dangerous and stuff like that. Okay, but stick with me here. Does then Mahomes become the villain because he's on the team that's won before and so many people are cheering for the Browns who are the factory of sadness to win? I think nationally, though, people get a load of Baker Mayfield's personality. I think that he's got a lot more villain in him than Mahomes does. Either way, that would be fun. Yeah. Those two would be super fun. You're killing me, Smalls. Well, one guy who's certainly taken on the villain role with a lot of people is Aaron Rodgers. We know that he's not long for Green Bay. He's out of there next season. And his former teammate, Will Blackman, did an interview with TMZ Sports, and they asked him to predict where Aaron Rodgers is going to play next year. Before I let you go, Will, so uh, like we said, this year, Aaron Rodgers, we know he's starting quarterback. Uh, Jordan Love's still waiting in the wings, though. Is Aaron Rodgers the starting quarterback for Green Bay uh, week one next week? Oh, we won. I mean, next, ne- I'm sorry, ne- next year. Next year, Aaron Rodgers will be a New Orleans Saint if Jameis doesn't get it done. What is, is that where you see him going? Is that a, New Orleans a, a Saints. landing spot? It, it, so that's the prediction. So so Jameis Winston starts this year for the Saints. and eh, okay season. Next year, Aaron Rodgers leaves starting quarterback New Orleans. So Jameis, so Jameis is playing for his career this year. I believe he will yeah. end up being the starting quarterback. And simply because he has, he's shown he is able to throw for 5,000 yards. He's one of eight quarterbacks in history to throw for 5,000 yards. He just threw too many damn picks. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) If he can throw 15 picks and still throw for 5,000, which I don't know who he's going to throw to this year, then he can get it done. But I can see Aaron Rodgers being in New Orleans Saints next year. A lot of people point to the Broncos. I said the Saints as well. It just seems like Aaron Rodgers needs to go to a place where He has power, and he respects the coach. Look at Tom Brady. He knew that he and Bruce Arians would be able to work in sync with one another because Bruce Arians would give him what he wants, and they have a a good, cohesive relationship. I could totally see Aaron Rodgers wanting to go play in a great place like New Orleans. Imagine him playing in the Superdome and playing for a guy like Sean Payton. And Payton hasn't won a Super Bowl since 2009. It's been a minute for him, and I have to believe that Regardless of the age of the quarterback, he wants to get that second one as soon as possible. And regardless of what Jameis Winston does this year, next year, if he's healthy, Aaron Rodgers is going to give Peyton a better opportunity to win a Super Bowl than Winston is, isn't he? Oh, yeah. No doubt. You're killing me, Smalls. And finally, Randy, the... Field of Dreams game is coming up. It's going to be the Yankees and the White Sox. I was so bummed that that got canceled last year for the Cardinals because mm-hmm. that would have been such a, a cool event for their, them to be a part of. But Guy Fieri came up with a specialty food item for this game, and I wanted to run it by you. Okay, stick mm-hmm. with me. He came up with the apple pie hot dog. The apple pie hot dog. So it looks like um, almost like a hot pocket with a hot dog inserted into it. So it's got a pie crust, bacon jam, apple filling, and a hot dog. Would you eat this? I'll take a bite. I I don't know if I will like it, but I will take a bite. I got to tell you, I didn't think I would like a bagel dog initially, but the bagel dog is delicious. So I'll take a bite and we'll see where it goes from there. People are really hating on this, but I actually think it has a chance to be pretty good. It's intriguing. 
You know, I think that the bacon jam might be the, th- the flavor yeah. profile that pulls it all together. A little sweet, but with that savory hint to it. Anyway. Yeah. I can't imagine the guy is going to make anything that's really, really bad, right? We saw him at the Hall of Fame, too. Yeah, that's right. He walked right in front of us. Can't yeah. miss that hair. No, not at all. That's a, that's a choice, that look. That is. That's a choice. I would be willing to to give it a shot. I gave that uh, the one that the, the, the the burger that the Gateway Grizzlies had with oh, the, the Krispy Kreme Krispy burger. Krispy Kreme, yeah, the uh, bun, Krispy Kreme bun. I gave that a shot, so I guess I'll try pretty much anything. Yeah, that was pretty good. But you take a couple bites of that, and you feel your heart start to you're zooming to race. That's right. No doubt. Thanks, Michelle. You got it. Coming up, we're going to cross things over with Danny Mac, the Danny Mac Show, coming up at the top of the hour here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. Congratulations to Alex, who's in Chicago from St. Louis, was listening to us on the app. Hey, Alex. He sprinted out of a witch witch store. He was getting a sandwich, but he had to sprint out and text in that he knew that Oklahoma was the opponent as Mizzou played before the biggest crowd of college game day in history back in 2010. So Alex is going to pick up his Bud, uh, Budweiser Bash bobblehead next Tuesday. He's going to get his David Freeze bobblehead in the game, or the Budweiser Bash part of it at least, is sold out. So congratulations to Alex. We'll have more tickets for you tomorrow. I've never been to a Witch Witch. Really good. There's it's one right up, up the street. Manchester oh, and I need to check that yeah. out. Oh, that's where it is, right up that street. Yeah. That's where I used to go. It's really good. All right. Yeah, my kids yeah. love it. Delicious. It is delicious. I would have thought the uh, biggest game day would have been like, so that so Mizzou Oklahoma is the biggest in Columbia. Yeah, eighteen thousand eight hundred. They had. Wow, I would have thought it would have been maybe Notre Dame. You'd think, or maybe an A and M with the twelfth man. Yeah, something A&M, like that. Somebody from the SEC. I guess Alabama. They do it every year. So yeah, they're kind of used to it, right? You know, the other one would have been the Division Two team. Um, is it which Dakota is it? Oh, That's North really Dakota. Dakota. Yeah. yeah. They just went there not too long yeah. ago, right? It was the first time there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that. That was really exciting. I could see that being packed. Something unique, something different. You know who else had a great crowd recently? And obviously this was pre-pandemic, but didn't Washington State have an awesome crowd? Yes. I yeah, remember when Leach that. was there, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then there's the guy that always brings the uh, Washington State flag. Yes, He's that's at right. every game day. He's kind of like Marlins man. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of Marlins man. Why not? I don't know. I, I just, yeah. He gets around. He does. He's he. I just I spotted him. Where was it? It was a big game recently with baseball that he was at, and um, yeah, he was in the background on that one. I don't know. Just forcing yourself into the picture again. Mm-hmm. I don't know. No, he does that. He goes on StubHub and looks for the front row seat. Yeah, that's kind wearing of his, his deal, Marlins jersey. Right, he's yeah. forcing himself into the picture. And he's yeah. a lawyer, correct? Yeah, yeah. At okay. one time we were going to have him on. I don't uh, in the fast lane, and. Meet got in touch with him, Brad Barnes, and he would incessantly text Brad Barnes after Brad got in touch with him to, oh. to be on. Yeah. Yeah. He likes the attention, apparently. Okay. So he did not come on the show, though. I think that we had a—I don't think it was a miscommunication. I, I think he wasn't able to come on at the time that we wanted him, and then we said, oh, yeah, don't really need it. 
I remember we used to get Big Dog from the uh, dog pound yeah. on all the time. He was a nice man. Yeah, he. I think he passed away. I, I think he did. Um, yeah. But that so happens with dogs. From the... Um, Hope they didn't have to put him to sleep. Cleveland ballpark, there was a section of the fan base they called the dog pound, and he was a leader. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or a big dog mask. Yep. One he time... Bark. That stadium held about 85,000. One time I produced a football Cardinal first game of the preseason, about this time of year, and it was completely full. There were no empty seats in Cleveland. It was unbelievable. And and I think it was the last year the football Cardinals were here. It might have been 1987, so they would have been coming off of the AFC Championship yep. game in the drive. But still, for a first preseason game, I guess we did that in 2002 after the Rams won the Super Bowl. It was incredible. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, now only three preseason games for teams. You were telling me uh, Trent Green was in Canton. Yeah, what a great guy. So nice. And uh, we were talking about it earlier, Dan, and you know Trent. What would it have been like if he would have quarterbacked the team to the Super Bowl? Not Hometown that Kurt, kid. Yeah, Kurt yeah. Warner is still one of the biggest sports celebrities in our town, even though he hasn't played a game here since 03. But if, if the hometown guy, the Viani product, leads that team to the Super Bowl championship, wow. Yeah, uh, I, you, I was connecting the dots because you were talking about preseason, and I think maybe one of the last preseason, if not the last preseason football game I went to is when he got hurt with Rodney Harrison, and I was sitting in... Like one of the suites that was kind of, I'd bought tickets to, because I was excited. I mm-hmm. wanted to see Trent. He was back. And um, so I had the view from, I guess, the the end zone. There were some suites there or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever yeah. it was. And um, and I could just see him. I can see Rodney Harrison right now coming and taking out his knee. And <sighs> when that happened, it was like, because they were playing well in that preseason. With him. He was 28 of 32 with yes. four touchdown passes. And people are like, okay. 28 of 32. Oh start, this is, you know, they got they got players. This right. is going to, they got a chance. And the place was excited about it. And I, that that's one of the times I can remember where an entire stadium just went quiet. And totally literally quiet. people got up and left. They were yep. so upset. It was it was upsetting to see that happen. It was terrible. I, yeah. That's like one of the worst nights of my life. And Trent, so, by the way, handled it like with such grace and class mm-hmm. watching the guy that takes his job. And remember the big at the time, the big news was the hometown kid coming back. They gave him the money and he wanted to be here and he's good. Mm-hmm. We finally got a guy yep. that's good that can get it to Isaac and others. And so and then he's doing it and people are excited about it. And it was just it was awful. And then that's the story of Kurt Warner. And also remember that in 98, Tony Banks was the starting quarterback. The Rams had played a game in Miami, and he decided to stay there and not return right. home with the team for his girlfriend's birthday party. So he doesn't show up On for the work. heels of felony yeah. at, uh, at training camp, it, yeah. his dog. So he doesn't Things show up. Things of that up, nature. Yeah, doesn't show up for right. work uh, on Monday. And so we get to Wednesday, and I said, well, and, and he's trying to defend himself. And I said, well, what about the concept of just showing up for work? And classic Tony said, well, you got me there. Is that what he said? <laughs> yeah. I didn't That's mind Tony Banks. <laughs> you got me there. Yeah. I like Tony. Uh, I do, too. And, and he matured, and he's a great guy. Yeah. He was, hey, he showed up and answered every question. Yes, he did. But fast forward then to that off season. Trent signs on a Wednesday, first day of free agency in the NFL. And you had this guy that didn't even show up for his day of work midseason. 
Trent signs on Wednesday. They have the press conference on Wednesday at about 10 in the morning. On Thursday, the first guy into the building lifting weights is Trent Green. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So he changed the culture. If you ask anybody on that team, we'll ask DeMarco about it. The guy who really changed the culture of that team was Trent Green and put them on the path towards being Super Bowl champions. He was a fabulous high school athlete, which yeah. many pro athletes are, but he was really good at basketball. His brother was a wide receiver and some believe that he was even better than Trent. He was a great athlete, too. And I think he was in track track and field at Vianney, but um, just they're kind of royalty at Vianney, yeah. which they should be. And his son is a quarterback now at Northwestern. Is that right? Yeah. So Doing Trent very well. went with Dick then to, uh, to, KC. to KC, and uh, I think that's where Trent has uh, settled his roots right. now. And, yeah, doing well. Yeah, they've got two, two in college and one still at home. Awesome. So he's doing well. and. Just, he, what a great smile. He's he's the kind of guy you wanted to root for. And then th- we brought him back. By the way, I think he's great on the air. He's terrific. Yeah. yeah. He and Kevin Harlan are outstanding really good. together on TV. Yeah. Who do we got coming up on the Danny Mac Show? Uh, Mike Petriello from MLB.com and MLB Network. And we're going we're gonna to tell you, everybody, uh, the Cardinals are going to get to the playoffs. Yeah. I, I believe I, there I is. a pin drop in here. Huh? <laughs> I read somewhere that there's a chance, like a 1% chance. Fangraphs yesterday put out, I think it's 1.3% chance. Yep. All right. That's that changes daily. Yeah. You know, Ebbs I mean, you, flows, go on, yeah. Yeah, you go on a run, all of a sudden it turns into 20% chance. By the way, yes. earlier this week, the uh, Pakota rankings, the Giants were given a 0% chance of making the playoffs this year, and they eclipsed their Pakota projection. Did they? Well, yeah. In, in well, August. What's their, what's their chances now? 99%. 99%. Yeah. Okay. So they did not say 100. No. Uh, it can happen. You can't be at 100. Right. But they were at zero at one point, so that's pretty good. You mentioned in the uh, David Freeze uh, tickets on Tuesday, I visited for about a half hour yesterday with David. Good. He, he's doing great, and he is fired up to come back to St. That's Louis. That's cool. Good. I mean, he is really excited, which is Tuesday. I, I'm, yeah. I'm really, I, you know... For the ups and downs of the wins and losses, it's it's days and nights like that that I look forward to. And that's, we talk about Trent Green. That's what David could have been. That's what Pat Maroon is. Right. You know, David is and Pat Maroon is and Trent could have been. I uh, I said I wanted to catch his first pitch. I don't know if that's going to happen. I really doubt it. But I said, I really need to catch your first pitch. And he goes, well, you're on my list. Behind Ozzy and probably the entire, yeah. you know, Ozzy's quota is taken care of, right? No, After I, he caught Maroon? Well, I don't know if Patty asked for Ozzy specifically. Mm. So, um, but David and I have had long conversations. Ozzy was our guy. You know, like we loved Ozzy growing up. So, Ozzy, if yeah. you're listening, David Freeze really wants you to uh, catch his first pitch. That, that's a done deal. It pro- well, if he hears he'll do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guarantee it. Yeah. Maybe cool. I'll talk to Joe Pfeiffer and see if we can't set that up. Yeah, he's fired up. Awesome. Good. Yeah. All right, we'll be tuned in, Daniel. Thank you. All right, guys, thanks. That is the great Dan McLaughlin. You'll hear him now, and you'll hear him tonight, Cards and Pirates, on Bally Sports Midwest. Thanks to Emily Butcher, our producer-engineer. Great job. Thank you. And Michelle, go get some rest. Thanks, Randy. See you tomorrow. That is Michelle Smallman. I'm Randy Carricker. For all of us, we thank you for tuning in, texting in, being a part of the show. Till tomorrow morning at 7. Have a great day, St. Louis. You've been listening to the Carricker and Smallman podcast, powered by I Promise. Here's the lowdown on lowering bad cholesterol from Lecvio. Lowering bad cholesterol is hard, but you could do hard. You live through five fad diets. 
11 sleep training nights, nine mediocre middle school recitals, one heart attack. And with Letfio, you can lower your bad cholesterol and keep it low with two doses a year after two starter doses. Prescription Letfio in glycerin is given by a doctor for people with known heart disease on a statin with diet who need more help lowering bad cholesterol. Common side effects were injection site reaction, joint pain, urinary tract infection, diarrhea, chest cold, pain in legs or arms, and shortness of breath. Results may vary. Learn more at Lecvio.com or call 1-833-537-8462. Ask your doctor about Lecvio. That's L-E-Q-V-I-O. Lower, longer, Lecvio. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.